Irish Man. That's very no, no, no. Deep. I know what I'm doing. Irish Man, the film I'm coming for you. The second and on that note, folks, welcome movie. to another episode of Not Another Film Podcast. Now, this is normally the podcast where we take movies we used to love as kids and we re-examine them in the harsh and sobering light of 2022. I remembered it on the first podcast. Wow, of the year. I'm so However, weird. Today, it sounds weird. Thank you. Because it's voice. fake. However, today <laughs> uh, we're going to do a little bit of a year-end, year-beginning tradition on this show, and we're going to do our top ten movies of the year. Yeah. These are yes. definitive lists. These are objective lists of fact to uh, for you to judge your life against. And if you don't have the same movies on your list in this order, then you're not a Lauren and Eric or an Ian. You're like, wrong. You know, then you're someone else. You have to choose so characters like Sex doing? in the City. You have to. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Lauren. Please, for the love of everything, tweet, tumble, LinkedIn us which one you are. I want to know which energy you're bringing. Yeah. Of Sex and the City characters or of us? No, of us. Like, who's an no, Ian, who's a Lauren, who's an Eric? Yeah. Okay, I, I just want to put out there, I've always I've always loved Charlotte and Samantha, but that's me. Samantha? I, can, I be a, can I be a Sex and the City character? You, I, I'm not going to stop your vibes, man. It's I expect you to do this entire episode as the Sex and the City character of your choice. You know what? Instead of doing a top ten list, do we just want to talk about how disappointing and just like that is? Well, I've never seen any of Sex and the City or the new one, so yeah, why not? Be an That's my interesting energy. Interesting podcast, yeah, it'll be very interesting. My resolution, and just like that, <laughs> my resolution for the year is to start admitting when I haven't seen things because I've never been good at that over my thirty years of life. I pretend so hard and then get caught in a lie. So I'm just gonna be and honest just with like you that, and our listeners. Eric got caught in a lie. <gasps> And the voice of that liar, folks, is Eric Eilerson. How are you doing today, we sir? Didn't even I'm doing so well, man. I have missed you guys so much. You've been gone physically from my life for so long and been gone from my pod life for so long. I'm so glad to be doing this. It was so fun making this list because I realized, despite all the awful things that happened last year, like, pretty fun movie year. So I'm, pr- I'm very, I'm earnestly excited to talk about every one of my choices, and I think that makes a good year. Yeah. Hells yes, I love that. We're also joined by Lauren Thompson. How are you? Hello, I'm good. There um, we go. Yeah, I I think like Eric, it, I think this movie really came through at the end. The, the, not this movie. Oh this movie. <laughs> I can't fucking talk. The movie. Life is a movie. Twenty twenty one, um, really came through it, especially at the end. But I think it was a pretty good year. Um, I did a lot of cramming at the end. I watched a lot of movies that I had been neglecting all year. So I did a sprint to the finish this year. And I'm yeah. proud of myself. You are now ready to retroactively put the Irishman on your top 10 of 2019. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We're talking we 2019 go. today, right? Oh, we yeah. We better yeah. be. I, I have to be honest <laughs> with our that's audience, too. the list too. I prepared. I love that, and I can't wait for it. And you did so much better than me, because I want to be straight with our audience. There's a lot of movies I have not seen. I'm a bad podcaster, mm-hmm. because I did count last night. I have played 113 hours of Halo Infinite. So, oh my wow. God, that's at least like 50 movies I could have watched. And I didn't. So many. So movies. I will own that and let you know that when I say, that's oh, like that's cool. Irishman's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also every I- Sunday, I basically binge an entire series of NFL football on a Sunday. So there are yeah. there's so much time that I haven't watched movies. Can I say this is a weird, a weird fun fact, but uh, I just did a lot of driving over the last few days. Every time I do like a long drive. I always and I see like a certain amount of time on the Google Maps till I reach my destination. Mm-hmm. I do kind of have to expand it to, from being like 
It's not 11 hours, Ian. It's three Irishmans. You're three Irishmans <laughs> away from getting home. And That's it, it does help things go by a little faster. Like if I'm like, oh, I'm less than an Irishman from home. It makes me feel a lot better than being like you're two hours and 50 minutes from home. Yeah. It's like, right. oh, I, I can watch the Irishman and be home. And I've watched the Irishman a few times. <laughs> Exactly. I know what's happening right now. It's the meeting with the shorts. Yeah, you're just sitting in your in your car by yourself, replaying the Irishman in your head to make it go faster. It is what it is. You You've know. memorized it. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into it. 2021. Eric, I think that uh, I, I want to kind of like start with where you left off. I, I agree. Weird year, uh -huh. uh, li life-wise. Uh, but I think in the end kind of shaped up to be a pretty good movie year. Mm -hmm. Certainly more. I was looking at my list from this year, and my list from last year, and I was just so much more excited by my movies this year. Yes. Mm -hmm. Last year, I think there was a lot of stuff that I was like, here's some good, like, you know, some stuff to stretch my, your palate or some stuff to like your home anyway, challenge yourself a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And this year really feels like I'm looking at my list and there's one spot that uh, is a little bit open right now that I'm like, maybe I'll pull a, a Hail Mary in the middle of this podcast. Oh, my God. But I've been watching a lot of playoff football this today, Ian. So I'm all about seeds and all about last minute gonna be the, victories. <laughs> I'm going to be the Mahomes to this podcast. It's going to be incredible. Um, I love when you but, talk dirty on this show. Rare. I've completely <laughs> forgotten what movies came out last year. It's all a blur to me. I don't it know. It was just Mank. I, yeah, I couldn't tell you a, oh, single, it was a Mank single movie Mank on my list. Great. What was yeah, my was number one? Do, do any of Mank you know? What was your number one? I don't know what mine was. Soul? Oh, it was Portrait of a Lady. Oh, okay. Portrait that was last. Was that, no, that was. came out every year the last five years. So yes. Yes. that's why it's tough. Yes. Yeah. Um, but but the thing that I really love looking at looking at my list this year because my list is great is that all of these movies are movies that I feel really passionately about, that I really have a sense of, like, if you don't like this, I am that is 100% okay. <laughs> like, there, there wasn't so much, like, kind of such a drought that it was like, I mean, if you don't like this movie, then kind of what are you doing? Mm -hmm. This year it's like, I got some weird, I got some me picks on this list, and if you don't have them on yours, 100% cool, man. 100% yeah. cool. I had an interesting um, experience with, like, the movies that I chose on this list because... This is the, the, like, this year was an interesting year for me with movie watching because I had multiple instances of the experience that I've, I've had a few times in the past where I've watched a movie and, like, while I've watched it, I have been confused or I've not quite, like, been in it and, and just kind of not understood what it's doing. But then I, I finish it and I can't stop thinking about it. Like, it's just lodged in my mm. brain like a puzzle that I just want to keep thinking about and then, like, one thing will click and then another thing will click and another thing will click and in retrospect the whole thing will open up for me uh -huh. and that's a really unique experience that I've never as a moviegoer had the patience for in the past I've just kind of expected huh. like instant gratification right up front I want to know what the movie is saying and how it's saying it the second that I'm in the theater uh -huh. um but I I this year I've given I've given myself the task of sitting with those movies and thinking about them and going back to them if they still stick with me a few days later. Mm -hmm. um, and some of those have ended up on my list just because I, I, I was like just fascinated with them. Um, so I think that, that's been really interesting for me because that's a new experience that I've had with movies this year. That's great. I, I think, do you, do you, or I guess to ask you, do you think that you feel more inclined 
to re-examine a movie because a lot of things have come out on streaming this year. So you've had the opportunity to kind of Honestly, start something yeah. up again. Yeah. And I think that I've also been more interested in like, I, I've tried to take a different approach to like reading movie reviews. Um, so rather than like letting them decide whether or not I watch something, kind of going to certain uh, critics and how like reading the reviews as a way of processing what I just watched and learning what to take away from it and appreciating the craft of how it gets that across. Mm -hmm. Um, it's been really interesting. I, the thing, the way that I kind of approached my list this year, um, was a way I I can't remember what movie critic I saw on Twitter. Yeah. I'm on, I I hate that I say on Twitter. Um, it said like, it's less about whether a movie is like objectively good right at the front in terms of my top 10 but more about like what are the movies that I am still thinking about today mm-hmm. yeah. what are the movies that just have that like sticking power in my brain that I keep returning to either to watch or to, to just think about and live in that headspace of um yeah, yeah. And I think that's what I'm using as my barometer for like a good movie um, yeah. I think I, I remember when we were doing our top 15 of the decade that was something we spoke about a lot was the stickiness of movies over mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. And now you wouldn't expect a movie like Scott Pilgrim to be like the sixth best movie of a decade. But uh, 10 years later, it's one that I'm still thinking about more than 95% of mm-hmm. other movies that I've yeah. seen. The, this year also for me was interesting because because of science. Uh, thank you to everyone that made the vaccines that allowed us to see some movies differently this year. <laughs> um, like I, I, all my movies on this list, some are streaming only. Some I saw in packed theaters. Some I saw in small theaters, some I saw in with different groups, sometimes I saw it by myself. Like, And it was interesting looking at this to kind of chart my year and what I needed at different times. I find this a lot with books. Uh, mm-hmm. I will treat a book differently based on where I am in my life. Like sometimes I need a low light, meditative music, relaxing, beautiful book. Sometimes I need a high stakes, fun action book, depending on how my life is going outside. And each of these movies I've chosen I watch them differently. I watch them in different places. I watch them with different people. And at different points in the year, I was feeling different types of ways. So it's, it, was, it was a fun, self-reflective journey to kind of track my 2021 based on, oh, right, this movie. I remember it because I was either happy or because I was super zen or because it just gave me what I needed on a Friday. Like, mm-hmm. I really liked to have yeah, that op- option this year. I love looking looking at a top ten year top top ten list as a roadmap for for your year, kind of emotionally. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really cool. Um, the, again, if I'm looking at my list and thinking of it that way, what a year! What a year it's been. <laughs> shall we? So shall we dive in? Let's let Timothy Chalamet. We. <laughs> it's not the naughties yet, man. It's <laughs> Sorry, not the naughties. No, that's just how I talk now. That's not a bit. There we go. <laughs> I'm, Someone just I'm sponsored by Chalamet. The, <laughs> let's talk about the movies we wish Shaw. Hey! Oh, it's a Ben Wishaw joke, yeah. I had to get it in there. If we're talking about Chalamet. Yeah, this is true. All right. Uh, would anybody like to begin their list with number 10? I'm also happy to jump in myself since I'm the host. I'll writer. go first. What do you want to do? I'll go Aaron, first. You go, please. Because my number 10, number 10s are always interesting, right? Because it's like, what's mm-hmm. the last one that's going to make it? Um, mm-hmm. and I, but it's I, also the most fun. Number 10 spots are fucking awesome. They're underrated agree. for how cool they are. Mm-hmm. Speaking of underrated, my number 10, I think is a very, very underrated movie. It was a movie earlier in the year. I have a lot of recency bias in my life. So I went back a bit and I remember this movie came out. I think it was early to mid year Netflix movie. And it was a movie that instilled me with a lot of joy that I needed. It made me just kind of be in awe of movie making again. And 
it's the only animated movie I have. This is Mitchell's versus the Machines. It was my number ten movie oh, of the year. Nice. Um, very briefly, this movie is uh, an apocalyptic family comedy, essentially, uh, mm. about a, a family that discovers there is a technological apocalypse basically happening where a bunch of machines that get taken over by the Siri-esque AI decide to kind of put humans in cubes. And essentially, it is a vehicle for this family to discover their connection and go through a bunch of shenanigans. And very much if you liked uh, Into the Spider-Verse style of animation and wacky storytelling, it's those people. It is very evident in Mitchell's versus the Machines. And it was a movie that just made me feel warm. And it, after a lot of time of not seeing my family, because I think this was still either recent vaccination or pre-vaccination, it was just a great story of love and of overcoming adversity, of warning about, hey, about those phones, be a little careful. Um <laughs> but more than that, it was just a really great look at animation of like, God, it's so cool they made this. And yeah. I was just blown away by it. Sony Animation's coming in hot. They've they Just when you want to count them out, you can't really count them out. Mm-mm. I mean, this year That's with fantastic. Spider-Verse coming back, they, they, they're they probably going to go two years in a row of having great animated films. And I just, I, I we Charlie and I, after we watched it, had a long conversation about it. And it, it was one of those movies that made me think about what makes up a good family? What makes up a healthy family relationship? And what's the relationship to, te- to technology? How does that all work? And it was just, it stuck. It is again. You said it stuck with me for a long time. If you haven't seen it, it is on Netflix. The animation style is gorgeous and fun and kinetic, very much like Incredibles meets the Spider Verse. Uh, so I would highly, highly recommend it. There's also a scene with Furbies that is maybe the hardest I laughed all year. So interesting. Yeah. It's on my list. I was I was too busy playing Halo, unfortunately, to catch it. But oh, it bro, was... give me that gamer tag after once we're off mic. <laughs> um, yeah, super solid. Very very fun hang. Mitchell's versus the machines. Lovely, Lauren. You want to go with your number ten? Yeah. Um, my number ten is a movie that very much snuck up on me. Um, that I I it's one of those movies that I was just talking about. A lot of my my like I think my ten and nine had had this experience. Um, my number ten is the French Dispatch. Um, Ooh, that's on my list as yeah, well, so I'm yeah, happy to talk about it. I'd love to talk it. about it. I, I, Ian and I had a really great conversation about this movie after I saw it because I, um, if you don't know, it's it's very much an anthology-based movie um, set in a small town. Um, and I don't know. I think it was an interesting step in my journey with Wes Anderson movies um, because I've talked to Ian about this in the past that I think they are so beautiful to look at and the craftsmanship is so incredible and they are so incredibly planned and intellectually they're they're very they engage to me but sometimes I'm left a little cold by them and mm-hmm. I've always kind of had to to work my head around that and and why they are so stylistically a little bit more stilted for me um and this movie actually helped me contextualize so much of that um because of the turn kind of in the third act with Jeffrey Wright's character um that I think is is one of my favorite scenes of the year um that really stepped back and showed you that like that Wes Anderson is choosing when to give you these emotion these moments of human connection that everything around it all of the craft around it all of the style around it is really like dressing just these moments of incredible simplicity and emotional connection um that also happens to look beautiful but i think that Jeffrey Wright is obvious like genuinely should be in the conversation more for supporting actor i think he is the beating heart of this film um Cannot and, and, agree 
more it anchors three scenes that I uh, that I truly keep coming back to time and time again that that said it's poetry in that it says something that you feel but you've never had words for about loneliness about being away from home um and about giving something up to go somewhere else but in that exchange maybe finding something that you felt you had lost in that first place um and so I was just really really touched by this movie it really snuck up on me for like the beautiful first two acts and then the emotional gut punch of the third which I thought was so purposeful and so beautiful that's amazing because I remember seeing this with you and really thinking you didn't like this. So that's it's fun. I was think, wrestling through that, a lot of it because I didn't know yeah. why I had that emotional experience of frustration and then intense relief. Um, yeah. And then I realized that that was part of the experience that he's trying to give you is that yeah. like, breath of relief when two people can just connect. Um, I love that. That everything that that the feeling that I was having that I was frustrated by was the feeling I was meant to have. Um, and that's when I knew I was watching something really great. Yeah, I so it's my number five, full mm-hmm. disclosure. Uh, I fucking love this movie. I think it's Wes Anderson's best movie probably since uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox Which for I me. love. This is my, that was yeah, my favorite. Which is so good. That's my incredible. favorite of his, yeah. But I, I think it's something, it's really has showed Wes Anderson has leveled up as as a writer and a director for me. Like, I, I found myself with this movie being, and I'm not just saying this because we saw this when we were in California, and uh, I maybe was not in a 100% sober mindscape when I saw this movie. But I had not felt this much pure joy at being back in a movie theater in a very long oh, time. That's And not just pure though. joy about like, yeah, right. But like not just pure joy about like the spectacle that you never see. Like we'll get to with other movies on my list where it's like, this is a truly incredible experience no matter what year I'm seeing it. The level of detail in the production design of the French Dispatch is staggering. It's yeah. I I really kind of cannot even f- begin to fathom what a day on set for this movie must have been like. There are so many creative swings the movie takes right when you think you've kind of got it pegged. It's going to change into a 4-3 aspect ratio, right? When you think you've got it pegged, it's going to, we're going to move through these tableaus Mm -hmm. on a one long shot where you can tell, you can see the actors kind of moving a little bit while they're trying to hold a tableau. Like we're going to move past. Now it's an animated sequence. Now it's a, you know, there are just so many tricks in the back pocket of this movie that I think are what Wes Anderson's critics kind of uh, hit him with mm-hmm. when they talk about him being maybe too twee or him being all style and no substance. But then, like you said, Lauren, he's got that third act with Jeffrey Wright and Steve Park. Mm-hmm. And you get a scene or two, and, and Bill Murray, an incredible scene between Jeffrey Wright and that's, Bill Murray. That's the scene of the movie for me, is the scene yeah. between Bill Murray and uh, Jeffrey Wright. Yeah, where where you really do, the way I've been putting it to people is it really feels like Wes Anderson has read the comments and he's Mm -hmm. like, I hear you and so I'm going to use the next thing to do that and then show you why I'm doing that. Yeah. And to show you that, like, I can do both. Yeah, there's an example earlier in the movie where an artist is talking about how he does all this impressionistic work um, and then he he can draw, like, you know, he can draw a picture of a bird. Like, you can do that. It's like, that's the truth. Like, the artist does go back and say, I can draw a very realistic and technical drawing of a bird. I can give you true human emotion. But I choose to do this as well. So you know it's a choice. It's Mm -hmm. not that I'm incapable of doing this. It's that I choose to tell my stories this way and to dole out realism when I choose. And there is purpose in that and there is craft in both. 
that yes. I uh, that I just really really appreciated. And That's I think cool. themat thematically, just to like my last little point on this, I think thematically, we get a lot of really interesting conversations about, uh, like you said, Lauren, um, about being an immigrant in a different country. You get a lot of incredible conversations and thematic elements about being homesick and what it means to be an ambassador for your home and what you want to share with the people that you love that may not 100% understand you. Um, and I love that he's using this this um, the kind of ship that the movie comes packaged in as a way of talking to that feeling of like, of like art can be in, in addition to being this, this savior or this whatever, or this way of to kind of like just spend a couple hours and do what and do nothing. It can also be a, like an attempt at representation for you mm-hmm. and that you can share this with people that may not be able to explicitly understand you or may not be willing to try and understand you as a way of just saying, here's kind of a composite of all of these things that interest me. I hope you like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that about it. It's I, for all of its shag and bluster. I fucking love the French dispatch. And I, yeah, it's my, it was my number five. Yeah. Great. So two quick things. Number one, uh, one Timothy Chalamet point for those following sure. along at home. <laughs> uh, <Yep>. and, <laughs> so, and so two, as someone who, who hasn't seen it, you said you, you had this movie pegged a couple times. How much pegging is there in this movie? Um, well, there's an incredible it. scene with Chalamet and Francis McDormand. You'll just have to watch. Excellent. Thank you. You can also say for the second time viewers, it's on my list. I have someone there who is go. also a Wes Anderson skeptic. That conversation makes me very happy. I'm very excited for that. Yes. Yeah. Um, my number 10 is uh, the best pure comedy of the year in our Lord 2021. And that is Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Folks. Yes, it is. Um, I think I really have been thinking about this movie nonstop since we watched it in March. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there was no vaccine for us yet. There was no hope in the world. We had just started toying with the idea of a COVID bubble. And on one of these nights, uh, Lauren, myself, uh, Cole and Sydney, who have been guests on this podcast before, decided to order some pizza and rent Barb and Star. And just had a it was such an incredible communal experience to laugh that much mm. this is uh annie momolo and uh kristen wig they're writing partners they've worked on these characters for years they're doing this as uh and and then they they finally got to make their own movie with these characters and it is the most pure absurdist comedy that i've seen since probably one of the early uh, Austin Powers movies. Like it yeah. really feels like Austin Powers and it really feels like Zoolander. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that I just haven't seen in a long time. And when I watch it, I just go, holy shit. I forgot how much I love these fucking movies and how funny they are and how weird they are. And it's really shot well. <laughs> like the last time I watched this, I was just like, this movie shot really beautifully. <laughs> it like doesn't need to look this good. Um, while you get incredibly hilarious uh, moments of Jamie Dornan singing on the beach. Lauren, yeah, I know comedy this is on scene your list of the year. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Do we want to talk about that now? Because this is my number eight. <laughs> there we go. Let's talk about it. I love this movie so much. Uh, I think absolutely right. It's Austin Powers. It's Zoolander. It's like, it's MacGruber. It's pop star. Um, it's just going, it's the big, broad, like, non-meta comedy that I just don't think we get anymore, um, or that is very rare. There's there's a certain level of, like, anytime you're doing a comedy, you have to talk about how you're doing a comedy, and you have to kind of have a take on comedy these days. Um, and this movie just doesn't give a fuck. 
This movie yeah. is just like we're doing bits and that's it. Like we are the movie here. is going to have the thinnest of plots, and it's they, just going to be a vehicle to get from bit to bit. We're not bit. doing social commentary. There's no secret heart at the middle of this. We are just here to make you laugh, and literally nothing else. And I, I just have to respect the shit out of that. It's um, incredible. <laughs> it brought me so much joy at a truly dark time. I've rewatched it multiple times at this point. I, I regularly listen to the musical number that's in this regularly um the fact that jamie dornan is getting an oscar this is getting an oscar nomination this year probably for belfast i'm like in my head i'm like yeah it's belfast it's great um but in my heart it's for it's for barb and star yeah in my heart it's for that it's what he deserves we we did the the jamie dornan renaissance is here um ready can't say enough good things it's just really fucking funny and the fact and I, i think that we'll have the cult following that we'll gain over the years and we, yeah. will, we will realize that it is sensational. Very good. I yeah. love it. Eric, what's your number nine? My number nine, uh, like Barb and Star, it checks the boxes of they don't make movies like this anymore. And Star Power and Baby Sometimes, it's just good to be the king. King Richard, number nine. <laughs> will Smith yes. being please, a goddamn... Please tell me you've worked out intros for all of your movies. I need like to this. now. I hope so. You're like You're a just... 90s radio DJ. <laughs> Dude... Sometimes I want to see Will Smith be a goddamn movie star, and that is what King Richard is. It is the story yeah. of Richard Williams uh, raising and training uh, Venus and Serena. Uh, uh, ever heard of them? Big tennis players. Uh, <laughs> and overall, it's just a great freaking sports movie uh, with Will Smith acting his ass off, and it's a really beautiful story of something that I thought I knew. I'm a huge or at least I was in, in this era, early 2000s, mid-2000s, a uh, huge tennis fan. I remember when Venus won her first Wimbledon. I remember when Serena overtook her. Like, I was watching with my dad. This was my stuff. And I remember Richard Williams was the crazy dad that no one liked, that was coaching and was being doing stuff that was frowned upon. And watching this movie was so cool, having that prior knowledge to watch Will Smith do a lot of the stuff that they said Richard Williams did, but do it in a way that made him a more sympathetic character, a more interesting character, and just a really great dad character. Um, the tennis is great. These scenes are great. Uh, John Bernthal also kills it in this movie. Very small part. We I love am our boy John. on board. Choo Choo, get this man a supporting actor nomination. John <laughs> Bernthal so is so good. fucking good in this movie. It's so silly how good he is. And there's no... The greatest thing about the role is there's no second layer. I kept waiting no. for the other shoe to drop with this dude of like, when's no. he going to turn into a dick? And he's just this nice guy from Pennsylvania that just trains people in Florida. Yeah. He's fucking awesome. He's just like, ugh, Richard. If, we had to, if you took a shot every time John Bernthal goes, ugh, Richard, you'd be dead. Yep. But it's, I mean, it, it is Will Smith coming back from, you know, the projects he's done over the years, either to be with his kids or to do, you know, he wants to do National Geographic stuff. That's fine. But this is him just being a real life character again. If you want your pursuit of happiness, it's scratched. If you want, like, if you like seven pounds, if you want Will Smith doing the dramatic roles, inhabiting a full character, using full star power for a movie, it was a breath of fresh air. Because I was like, oh, God, I miss seeing these kinds of movies. And it was really mm-hmm. freaking well done. Love King Richard. And it yeah. was also great because it was, it was one of the first ones where I was like, oh, HBO, day of? Great. I'll watch it at home. And I still had a great experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was one that my cynical brain wanted to tear down while I was watching it. And it just, it beeped right through, ripped <laughs> right through. I was 
crying at the end, man. Yep. I wanted, oh my God. I loved it. I thought it was terrific. And the girls are incredible when she's like, I don't want to let you down. Like, oh my God. They are both tremendous. I, I believe um, the actress that plays uh, their mom is also in supporting actress race. Unjanae Ellis. Unjanae yeah, Ellis, thank you. In this. Like, great performances all around. Just a great freaking movie. I don't think, I don't know if it's still on HBO because of the weird right stuff. If you want just a great Saturday night popcorn movie, freaking watch King Richard. Yeah, yeah. That's a great pick. Uh, Lauren, what's your number nine? My number nine is the movie with the best hula hooping scene of the decade. <laughs> and that is Power of the Dog. Fuck yeah. <laughs> also on my list. <laughs> have not stopped thinking about this movie since I watched it. Um, this is one that some that amazing text message conversations between Lauren and I <laughs> oh about Power my of the Dog. God. Like, yeah, it was very good when I was watching it. And I, I was like, I was aware that what I was watching was fantastic. But then, you're a big Bronco Henry head, though, oh right? My, like, I mean, yeah, man. yeah, absolutely. He's one of your guys. My Have you God, heard about Bronco this guy? <laughs> oh, I mean, they'll tell you about him within the first five minutes, and you're like, I need to know more about this dude, Bronco Henry. Yeah. Um, Bronco Henry could spit shine a solid <laughs> piece of mud. Bronco Henry could fuck a woman in Montana all the way from California. Like, no, he wouldn't. Okay. Well, he uh, could. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. The thing is, he could. But he could. <laughs> <laughs> Not his style. Shine that saddle, Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, <laughs> shine on, little Benny. Shine it's, on. It's so interesting how when you watch this movie, some of the things that, that I, I expected to bump up against about, um, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch, a Brit, playing this, this like, cowboy character. Um, and, and this idea of, like, I, I kind of came in thinking that he would be miscast, but the more you learn about this character, the more that is a purposeful choice, very clearly. I appreciate that the movie is engaged, it, like, there are things in this movie that don't seem right at the beginning, um, and that seem like they almost might be mistakes in the craft, but then the storytelling supports every single one of those choices. Everything mm -hmm. that seems like a one-off thing, it's just, like, the way that this movie... The last 10 minutes of this movie are an amazing follow through on everything else that the movie has set up. The last yep. 10 minutes, basically, I love a movie that in the last 10 minutes recontextualizes literally everything you've seen in the entire movie. Yeah. Um, so there was so much that I, you, you really do have to bear with this movie. You really mm -hmm. do have to just engage with it on its level and trust. And the movie will reward that trust. And so, and like immediately after this is done, I just wanted to watch it again. To mm -hmm. kind of get everything that I'd missed and, and rewatch it with those new eyes that the end gives you. Um, and that's also, that's not even saying like how amazing the performances are. Like genuinely, this is like, across the board, incredible performances that are captured beautifully. There, there are just so many quiet moments in this movie that I can't stop thinking about of just people's faces alone in rooms versus the way like I don't know there's just lingering shots on people's faces being observed by no one and then specific people and seeing the masks that they put on and the ways that they they react to being perceived mm -hmm. um is is just really really fascinating um and I I just like I truly like I, I had to talk like all day to Ian via text the day after I watched this because I just couldn't shut the fuck up about it uh and that's yeah. a sign of a, of a good movie I think that I I just like I don't know. It, it's one that definitely will stay with me. I yeah. love that. Eric, where is it on yours? Uh, I had Power of the Smog at six, um, which Boom. is what I could now call it because of our boy yeah. Benny. Honor the IP. That's great. Love that. Um, I, I, everything you said and more. I mean, I think that this movie was 
it, it's interesting because slow burns typically mm -hmm. right they start slow and then they ramp up this stays mm -hmm. at the same pace the whole movie mm -hmm. but even at the end when you get like you know don't google this movie you haven't seen it honestly the end is very very great i hope you get to watch mm -hmm. it just fresh it doesn't ramp up in intensity mm -hmm. a thing happens and you're like whoa oh i get this but it stays mellow and like i mm -hmm. again i watched this turned off all the lights put the phone on airplane mode like just watched it met it on its level like you said and you just get to witness just great fucking acting. I mean, there's mm -hmm. just something to be said for a movie that's just great actors doing great acting and a really mm -hmm. good story with a bomb-ass director. Like, it's not an overly mm -hmm. complicated film. It's not a bunch of Dutch angles and weird shit. There's just mm -hmm. characters going through a lot of stuff. Kirsten Dunst doing a phenomenal character arc, a bunch of physical acting from her that was mm -hmm. really, uh, like, startling uh, for me. Heartbreaking. Yeah, from, like, her tip of her... More famous performance. I'm going to say typical. Her more famous performance that she's known for. It's a really great shift um, just to see what she does. And the more you learn about this world, the more you learn about the conflicts between all the relationships and how, how strained they are between almost everyone in the entire movie mm -hmm. is so good. And, I mean, I, it's, it's kind of cliche to say at this point, but Cumberbatch is just such a magnetic actor. Anytime he's on mm -hmm. screen, even if I don't always love the project, when he's on screen, I want I want to watch. I want to see what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And this most reminded me of his performance in the National Theater Live's Frankenstein. To me, mm -hmm. like that, I felt similarly drawn to what he was doing, to his movements. Everything was so intentional, especially once you get to the later mm -hmm. part of the movie with his his past with Bronco Henry and things like that. Those moments of him, like you say, being being observed when he doesn't know, is so intimate and. Mm -hmm. Like, as an audience member, I'm like, am I supposed to be watching this? Am I supposed to be seeing that this yeah. is happening? And it was really cool to get that moment. So, yeah, easily uh, number six. And, I I, yeah. I mean, this is the front runner for, for Oscars right now. This is not going to win anytime soon. Yeah. And it's just it's – a, it's a real force of a movie. And it delivered. Yeah. And I think that yeah. it is a movie that is, like – I don't know. It, it's so – like, I don't know. It just feels so glib to, to just say, like, it's about toxic masculinity. Um and it is like it very much is but it is also about it's interesting how a movie with so many male characters is about the power of femininity um and and the, the weakness of toxic masculinity and the power of femininity um in a really unexpected way and mm -hmm. i i'm i i find myself just really kind of obsessed with the way that this movie grapples with with different types of strength um and and what type of of how that inhabits the way that you interact with the world and the way that you interact with that other polarity. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's something in this movie. This movie was like in my, my like 11 through 15 that are all like not ranked. Cause I just, I love all of them very equally and they could have been on my list. And at a certain point in time were on my list, <laughs> but this is like my like 11 or 12, but there's also something about like that. This movie is about cycles, like cycles of shame, cycles of toxicity, and and the threat of those cycles, which I just think is is the more you kind of the more I think about the movie, I I just think oh, but that's that's there. Like Campion's telling us that from the beginning with the mm -hmm. rope imagery and with the with just this, we're constantly seeing circles. We're constantly seeing the themes that the movie is about A echoed back hoop. to us. <laughs> and yeah, like the hula hoop. Mm -hmm. But but so that in two hours, and this movie so easily could have been a two and a half hour movie, but in just two hours, she really does give a perfect little like 
box of a movie. It's mm-hmm. so well contained. Everything's there. It's like getting a great meal kit from a meal delivery service. You're like, this has got the perfect amount of every ingredient for everything I need to make Bronco Henry stew. And it's really good. <laughs> it's you, Ian. Power of the Dogs brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh. <laughs> use a use a code Naughties to get fuck nothing, but it is very helpful. Yep. <laughs> Which is also the Bronco Henry special. Fuck nothing. But uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, Watch the movie. That's anyway, a fucking yeah. great joke. It's it's a great movie. It's very very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number nine is uh, Sean Baker's Red Rocket. Show of hands. Anybody seen this one yet? Um, I didn't. I didn't think so because I knew that you would fucking hate it. Um, but I'm excited so, for okay. it. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So on the one hand, the logline of this movie, uh, Simon Rex plays this ex adult film actor named Mikey Saber, who is returning to his home in Texas City, Texas in 2016 for reasons that you find out about later on. Yeah, I didn't realize it was a period Texas City, Texas. That, that, that's, what, that's what caught me by surprise, but it's Texas, so sure. Um, and, <laughs> and it's a comedy, yes. It's a, dark, it's a very dark comedy. It's a near horror movie at some times because uh, he goes back, moves in with his, uh, his wife with whom he's separated from and lives with her and her mom. And you're, it's really just a character portrait. It's a lot like Uncut Gems in that you're just spending a lot of time with this one person in different situations. And you slowly are just starting to track the personality and the, you know, to go back to it again, the cycles that, that we as human beings regularly find ourselves in when our back is against the wall. And his back is against the wall for this entire movie. And then just when you think it can't get any more against the wall, they push down that wall and oops, you're in a room of other walls and his back's against all of them. And it's just like the last 20 minutes of this movie is so antic and wild. I almost felt like I was watching a different movie, but it all makes sense and leads to a final shot that I had been thinking about for a long time just because I, it, it could mean so many things. Um, it's a really disorienting movie. And and one of the big things we should, spoiler alert, let people know, this movie does uh, heavily focus on a relationship between a man in his late 30s, early 40s, and a 17-year-old. And it is very explicitly shown in many scenes. And it's that challenge that the movie is about and uh, about how men typically prey on young women. And... In with all of that said, the movie I kept thinking about the most after I left Red Rocket was There Will Be Blood. I couldn't stop thinking about There Will Ooh. Be Blood. It just felt very much like the character, the Mikey Saber character, is cut from the same cloth as a Daniel Plainview. And is this kind of metaphor for the all-consuming and never satisfied and hustling, lying, dark seating you know, underbelly of America in this one human being. And it's so charming. And sometimes you just want it to work out, but then you realize kind of what's fueling the engine of this character. And you're like, this, this should never be fed. And these Mm -hmm. type of people should never succeed. And the problem is most of the time they do. And, and there is a, you go to these Sean Baker movies to like Florida project and to Tangerine for this humanistic eye. This dude does this better than so many other directors. And watching these oil refineries in the background of all of these shots and seeing just this fucking destitution in these rundown houses and these people that are smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, sitting on their front porch, not having jobs. 
right next to this giant Make America Great Again sign, like, knowing that, like, these people are probably going to fucking vote for the dude who made that sign and there's not making America great for them, mm-hmm. was just an added level of satire on top of what's going on. And just, it made the movie, re- like, I, it's one that I have not stopped thinking about since seeing it. Mm-hmm. And I am going to be on the front lines petitioning for Simon Rex to get an Academy Award nomination because, my God, this is a fucking performance. I'm very excited to see it. Yeah, it's good shit. Eric, what's your number eight? Well, guys, America isn't great. A lot of things aren't great. If you know it is great, big fucking swords, big fucking movie stars, and three different timelines. It's the last duel, baby! Speak, baby! <laughs> three different so, perspectives. <laughs> so, yeah. Not just so three the, different timelines, three different three point different, of views, which you is even ro- more ambitious. That's right. You want Rashomon with sex and swords? It's the last duel, baby. Um, so this literally saw this movie yesterday, <laughs> and mm. or no, two days ago. When did we watch this? Two days ago. Two I'm days still ago. nursing the hangover from watching it with you. That's right. Two days ago, baby. <laughs> the last duel. Um, first of all, we all fucked up not seeing this in theaters. Let's own that. What was wrong with we, us? <laughs> we missed it. But this movie, if you don't know, it was COVID. It was, COVID. it was COVID. It was COVID. It stars uh, Matt Damon. Uh, Matt, Matt Damon, that one. Uh, it stars Adam Driver. And most importantly, it stars Jodie Comer. Director of Ridley Scott. There is uh, a friendship, pseudo-friendship between two squires, Matt Damon and Adam Driver. Uh, Matt Damon eventually marries Jodie Comer's character and is, is possibly uh, assaulted by Adam Driver. She then accuses him to Matt Damon directly, and the movie basically shows... Matt Damon's character's version of what he believes, Adam Driver's version of what he believes, and then Jodie Comer's uh, version of what happened. And it all culminates in what you may guess is the last duel for honor, and, and it explores all kinds of things. Themes of, of truth itself, themes of the repressive, because this takes place in the 1300s, so women are oppressed to say the least. Um, it's, it looks at power, it looks at ego, it looks at pride. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Yeah. And what could have been just kind of like a guy macho fuck sword movie, which, let's be clear, there are moments when the three of us men who watched this were watching a sword fight and went, oh, yeah! Like, this guy made Gladiator. It's Ridley Scott. Like, that's in Ridley there. still got it. Like, what are you going to do? He still got it. <laughs> but it is also, it also does not shy away from the, like, horrors of what men to women and like Jodie Comer's character especially in the third act of the film which is when it becomes from Ridley's mouths and from what it is her movie um, Mm -hmm. it is very intense um, and ultimately kind of like in a weird way like King Richard it's a bunch of really great actors in a giant big budget movie doing great scenes there's great sets and ultimately there's a great freaking fight both verbally and physically and I just got, I got hyped, I got disgusted, and at the end of it, I was just like, god damn, fine picture. Really great movie. Um, I will admit, I I was not as in, in the, in the Matt Damon part, it's a very different movie once it hits Driver and Comer. So, if you're, if you're watching it, it's a long, it's two and a half hour movie. Ridley, Ridley made the movie he wanted. But also if you're a little- incredibly <laughs> important. Yes, the, you got it. The Damon bit is so important. It's so key. Yeah. Go through there it. because you really need it. Once you get to driver and what is really the driver Affleck section, um, 
it, it's a completely different movie, and then the Comer section brings it all together, culminating in maybe one of the best, most visceral choreographed fights I have seen on screen in years. So, yeah. last duel, happy to put it at number eight. Fantastic. This is another one that lives in that 11 through 15 spot for me, where I was like not expecting to like this as much as I did, and I fucking loved it. It's yeah. so good. Yep. Um, this is my number just... five. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Speak on it, it on it. I love this film. I mean, everything that Eric said is true, but um, I, uh, so I, this movie was really unexpected to me. I really didn't think I was going to like this movie as much as I did. Um, especially, like, as you said, the Matt Damon section, I was, I was not quite on board for. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, I don't know. It is so purposeful with the way that it doles out information. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and like, because really the whole movie is about how different people choose to dole out different pieces of information. Yeah. Who owns the like, land, Lauren? Who owns the land? It felt like reading a really good book. Like, it felt like reading a really good yeah, novel. The yeah, details yeah, 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 yeah. are so clear. And I think, I don't want to delve too much into it because the things I love most about this movie are spoilery or verging mm-hmm. on spoilery. And I don't want to get too granular. We are, like, trying to not take time. Um, but I'm kind of obsessed with the, with the way that, as people have pointed out before, um none of the events change between the Mm -hmm. different tellings. No one is is just, like, flat-out lying about an event not happening or happening. Um, But there are ever so slight changes you start to see when we get to Adam Driver, the second section. Yeah. um, Of just, like, different pieces of information, not only in the way that... I mean, truly, in between the first and the second one, they don't even use different takes, but sometimes they'll use a longer bit of a take. You'll mm-hmm. hear like one more line that the other person yep. has omitted, or it'll show a close up of someone else's face rather than theirs. Yeah. Um, or you yeah, or someone else said angle. a line, and it's like it's the same text. It's like yeah. Wait, but did they? But did they? Who was? But then I don't yeah, think it's a spoiler to say that I think the big change happens when you see Jodie Comer's point of view, yeah. and you realize that that's the <clears throat> one that has completely different scenes. Like, it's, yes. again, yes. the events don't change, but lines are different. Inflections yeah. are different. Actions have different different impacts. Um, and it really is, like, just so much more of a, of a feminist tale than I was expecting it to be, frankly. Yep. Um, I, I, I was really kind of just absolutely knocked out in the transition between the Adam Driver section and the Jodie Comer section. I think Jodie 100%. Comer is an absolute powerhouse in this. Um, yep. the, the, the detail that I, I keep coming back to, that I'm absolutely obsessed with, um, that just stick, will live rent-free in my brain is that when Adam Driver tells the story of the assault. Um, and also, first of all, I love that even in the Adam Driver version, it's clearly assault. Yes. Um, yep. That yeah. they never shy away from that. Even in his version, clearly is. Um, but in his version, she, when she is walking up the stairs away from him, she kicks off her shoes. Mm-hmm. And then in her version, she trips and her shoes fall off in her haste to get away from him. It's the same, and that I think that is the perfect encapsulation of exactly what this movie is doing. That is the same event happening, but mm-hmm. two people perceive it in completely different ways. And I'm obsessed with the way that they always say the truth according to blank, and yep. then yeah. at the end it says the truth according to Jodie Comer, and then every word disappears except for the truth. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's and, and especially after these past couple of years of very public trials mm-hmm. involving assault and things like that, like. The, the scene that sticks in my mind the most, it's been 48 hours, is the scene after the assault um, mm-hmm. in the driver timeline between Driver and Ben Affleck, mm-hmm. where you see the two men in power being like, bro, just be real with me. Like, did you do this? Like, mm-hmm. it's fine if you did. Like, and it's like, oh, my God, these are the conversations mm-hmm. that happened 700 years Still. after this movie. Like, yeah. it is the, bro, just here's what you're going to do. It's, it's, mm-hmm. 
seeing the man, also Affleck, secret MVP of this movie as well, like having the best time um, mm-hmm. in some of his scenes. But that particular scene is the maybe the most gross I felt all year in any scene because yeah. it's like, wow, yep, yep. This is this is yeah, it, and then the scene where the all end, the men are... realizing his enabling, and like also like yep. the close-up shots at the end um, during the duel of him realizing that his enabling has brought it to such a fever pitch. Yep. That by yeah. enabling this, he has yes. created this situation where somebody's going to die. Yeah. Um, but I think yeah, I think the thing that I that I, I loved most about this was just the the the, the way that it, it engages with storytelling and perspective. Um, and also, I don't know why the fuck we're not talking about Jodie Comer for awards this year. I genuinely don't know why she's not in the conversation. It's insane to me. Makes no sense. It's genuinely, I also want to give a me. I want to give a special shout out to Harriet Walter, who plays mm-hmm. um, La Carouge's mother. She's what uh, a year! Also, Ca- what a year! Car- Caroline from Succession. <laughs> what? Well, and, I, just and Ted Lasso. Mom from Ted Lasso. And Ted Lasso, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Love like, everyone's so I, different accents. Like everyone's making a different choice. Some people are Americans doing British accents. Some are Americans. Matt not Damon doing is from accent. Boston, England. All right, like that's we, we don't need to mess around with that. that. But but so that's one of the secret things about this movie too that I think my fear going into it was that it was initially going to be a little bit more lecturing than I wanted from a movie. Like kind of knowing what it was about and and kind of seeing the trend in Hollywood today and being like, well. We're not going to make a movie like this about the subject that is not going to at least attempt to engage with a teaching moment for its audience. Mm-hmm. Getting to see not only kind of – because the scene, the assault is that is shown in this movie is, is shown twice and is very brutal both times. And the stuff surrounding it, I almost felt guilty how much fun I found so much of the rest of the movie. Yeah. Where it ended and I was like, I kind of really want to watch it again. Mm. Because there were just acting moments that were really great. Mm. The set looked amazing. It's just like, it looks so good. And then, yeah, the fight at the end, which you can watch on its own and be like, this is such a badass (laughs) duel. Yeah, it's just really cool. But then also, like, with the context of the two hours and 15 minutes leading up to it, are like, what a pointless useless thing that we are doing right now. Yeah. And and truly that the person who is most at involved in it does not want. Yep. Doesn't want. Doesn't want. Yep. It. She doesn't yep. want it. Yep. So also I, there I, are some I, things yeah. in that duel as someone who's watched a decent amount of night movies and medieval stuff that I've never seen on screen before. Like there were moments we were watching it with also our friend Sam, friend of the pod, uh who does way more fight choreography for a certified living than sword us. boy. Yeah. Yeah, that was like Whoa! Like, the, we, we had never seen some of the things they did. Uh, so it's, yeah. Love, Love it. that. Great shit. Lauren, uh, we all messed up. It's $6 to rent. Go do it now. Go do it. Lauren, what's your number eight? Uh, my number eight was Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Fuck yeah. My number eight, this was my open spot. This was the audible I was going to I was gonna mm-hmm. pull. Mm-hmm. Um, Succession uh, season three as a movie. <clears throat> you know what? Every, every one of the movies that I'm really considering is, I think, going to get said later on in this show so i'll get a chance to talk about it so i'm going to go with my heart and i'm going to go with the movie that surprised me more than any other movie i saw this year and that is west side story whoa yeah um, that's higher that's yeah. higher for me and lauren <laughs> yeah so if we want to talk about it do we want to talk about it later then when we get to when we get close to you guys i'm happy to talk about it later yeah i talk would, about it later yeah yeah i'm gonna talk about yeah. it later. it's real good All right, <laughs> then i guess we'll go to uh eric what's your number seven um, I'm, 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 a. you know, sometimes men make choices in life and sometimes these choices end on the day. I should have used this for Red Rocket. <laughs> <And> sometimes <laughs> they follow us for years 
and change us fundamentally, and we think we can escape, and yet we can't. Where is this Because going? at the end of the day, we're just all counting cards. This is the oh, card okay, counter at number seven. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. What yeah. Rock you just I'm glad somebody's talking about it, baby. That, Let's go. No, no. So this is uh, a movie with, uh, again, check the box once for the first time, Oscar Isaac. Hell of a year for our man. Um, Oscar Isaac uh, vehicle where he plays um, a former combat veteran uh, that he plays, he plays cards. And it's weird because this movie is almost hard to talk about without seeing it because there's it's it's a poker movie but it's not a poker movie it's not a blackjack movie it's not a mo- it's not rounders to barely learn how to count cards you barely learn how to count cards but it is about watching this psychological profile of a man who is kind of just making his way through life and then these couple people come in every once in a while very small movie very quiet movie but eventually you learn more about his past about what he did when he was in the military and about how that kind of follows him around in his life. And as these revelations come up, you, you see his facade that he has built up so purposefully to the point of where he stays in hotels is so very odd and specific. The way he carries himself in conversation is so specific. The way he carries himself in the card table is so specific. But as he begins to let people in a little more, it crinkles, it crinkles. Uh, Tiffany Haddish in a great role as well. Um, Hell yeah. Uh, unlike anything you've ever seen her in before. Has a great time in this movie, um, and a lot of chemistry with Oscar Isaac. A lot I mean, of chemistry with Oscar chemistry Isaac. with like a fucking like bottle of champagne. But man, that you know, those are some spicy scenes between the two of them. It absolutely is, um, and she does a great job. But but the movie is mostly based on Oscar Isaac and Ty Sheridan, who plays kind of his possible protege ish. Again, um, as you see, the movie it becomes more clear. But this is a movie again. Ian and I saw this. Um, in theaters together, and it was one of those movies that it's like came out. We talked the whole way home about it. I was just like, yeah. it stuck with me, and I was like, man. So like, whoo, yeah. <laughs> like it's just it was one of those things that hit you with very. So there's some very graphic scenes about it, um, involving uh, torture, involving issues of brutality. Uh, but there's also scenes of absurdity. Like there's this other poker player that follows the circuit. Uh, I think like Mr. Amer- USA or whatever. USA, yeah, USA Joe. USA Joe, that is just really funny and ridiculous. And Oscar Isaac, on the surface, isn't doing a lot in this movie. But when you watch it, you realize how complex he actually is treating this character. And I think it's the best performance of the year in a year where he did a lot of really great work. Um, but yeah, I think Paul Schrader delivers on another movie about a tortured man going through a lot of hard shit. And it ends in a pretty hard way. Uh, not a feel-good film. Not a, no. not one that's going to make you happy afterwards, but just a really great portrait of a really intense man. And honestly, I'll, re- I'll watch Oscar Isaac do anything. So this was the one that just kind of simmered in my brain for the rest of the year. Yeah, it's a great movie. I, I don't have anything else to add. I really loved it as well. It's in my, it's in my like, you know, 14th or 15th spot as well, but it's a great movie. Uh, Lauren, what's your number seven? My number seven is a movie that I don't know if Ian is this ended up on your list, but this is a movie a movie that I watched the same night I watched The Last Duel, um, and this movie is The Lost Daughter, which is on Netflix. Oh, I this was what yet. I was considering tossing in uh, instead of West Side, but it's cool. so I would love to. I would love if you talked to, about this, Ian, because we also haven't we we watched this very recently. We have not talked about this movie. We haven't it's talked happening. about it yet, Ian. Live. So just like really quickly. 
Ian, this movie fucking rocks, right? <laughs> Lauren, the lost daughter. <laughs> this Whoa. movie's fucking amazing. It's so good. It's so good. Like, Maggie I thought it was going to be good, but it's so what good. What fuck? I... It's... Yeah, so talk. It's on your list, so I want you to actually talk on it. I'll sprinkle some Ian dust at the end of this. But I had been but hearing hype to... about this movie for so long. The so bar, much hype. The bar was high. High bar. And she fucking did it, ladies and gentlemen. Made the leap. <laughs> um, I don't, there's so little I can say about this movie because I really do think this is a movie you shouldn't go into knowing too much about? No, absolutely nothing but these three words, Lauren. Olivia fucking Coleman. Know those words. Jesse fucking Buckley. That's Um, true. That's true. This cast is incredible. Yeah. Um, I, so basically this movie is about, I'd say it's about motherhood. Um, You could say that. Yeah, you could say it definitely is. I think it is, it is at her, at times a drama it is a thriller. It is a full-out horror film. It is. I was going to say, Lauren, you're bearing the lead. This movie is a full-on emotional horror film. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, this is an emotional horror film. Like, I think that this is the... I don't know. I don't know how to not sound trite when I say this. But this is why women are have been advocating for women to make movies about women. Because this is, I think, my number one movie of, like, this movie could not have been written or made by a man. Totally. Absolutely not. Not a single thing in this. It is the most painfully real movie about motherhood that I've ever seen. It is horrific, and it is actively just, like, giving the middle finger to everyone who's like, it's okay, everyone has motherhood inside of them, and, like, it'll come. Like, it's this beautiful experience. And this movie's like, no, it's fucking horrible sometimes, and not everyone is, is, is cut out for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just I don't know how to talk about this without getting into details but I I don't know there's something about this that just felt so for lack of a better word bold of just like this is a movie that is so self-assured it's wild that it's a debut um, yeah it's it's pretty remarkable the, the patience this movie unfolds with mm-hmm. I think the screenplay which Maggie Gyllenhaal also adapted herself is fucking fantastic it is it's self-assured. such a good screenplay like the, the way these characters talk in between lines, and it's based on an Alana Ferrante novel, or mm-hmm. short story, I should say. Um, if you've ever read My Best Friend, it's, um, it's you know, it's a tough writing style to, to adapt. I've never read mm-hmm. this this one. Um, but, yeah, I think that there's something about what's said in between the lines that is mm-hmm. so much about what this movie is about. And you get to meet a bunch of different mothers mm-hmm. to go with the theme of motherhood. At not only different time periods, but from different places and at different ages and stages of being a mother. Mm-hmm. And every single one of them feels so distinct and so distinctly different. From an older woman who's about to have her first child, to a younger woman that's had her like second or third child, to like a woman who's a grandmother looking back on what that's like. And mm-hmm. seeing how every character has such a different reaction to this incredible experience... And when you have lead characters in a movie that are constantly looking for an answer to something that is so universal, there are so many mothers in the world. And it, you'd think that it could possibly be, at least in some respects, a universal experience. And yet this movie is constantly telling you it's not. Yeah, Every think, case yeah. is different. At and the it core was, of this movie, yeah. I think, is this, is this idea of like, I think, 
for lack of a better word, how how lost you can feel um, because there is a sort of shame associated with not wanting to be a mother or not feeling well suited to being a mother. Um, and there's a loneliness to feeling like there's something wrong with you because you don't prioritize certain things or because you weren't cut out for certain things. Um, and kind of just like the mass brainwashing that we do as a culture um, for all women to like if you do not feel a mothering instinct that there's something wrong in you um because like this is obviously something that every person must take joy in so if you don't feel that if you feel depressed or you feel overwhelmed or you feel angry sometimes you are never supposed to feel that you are wrong and so because you're feeling that and because everything around you is telling you that is something that other people don't feel that it just makes it worse and it just puts it into this toxic spiral within you because not only are you feeling these things but also the world is making you think you're the only one feeling them and it's because something's fundamentally broken and therefore Mm -hmm. you can't find a way out of it there's no way out of it into getting past it because it's not something that we're even allowed to talk about amongst ourselves um and i i just don't see that story told pretty much ever I was gonna um, say I've never seen a movie that's spoken this frankly, um, and this kind radical. of fear, fearlessly about a subject that feels pretty tired. Yeah. Or could, on the surface, feel pretty tired. But yeah, I, I think I I don't know. I just think there's something about it that is just so relentless and so bold and so and truly like radical. This movie yeah, it's felt a defi- like I was it's a defiant movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love it. It's also got the number one scene in a movie theater of the year. Easily in a movie theater. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just, and it's also like Maggie Gyllenhaal just understands the assignment. If we're going to be doing emotional and psychological warfare with our audience, set your fucking movie in a beautiful Greek Island in the summertime. (laughs) Just do it. We love it. You want, we love to see it. And get Olivia Colman. Get Olivia (laughs) Colman. She's incredible. She's, Um, I realize this is the coldest take in the world, but that Olivia Colman, She's a fucking great actress. She's amazing. It's cold, but lest we forget, you know, we got to keep saying it or else we will take like, her for we granted. Can't. You cannot <laughs> yeah. take her for granted. I cannot overestimate how good she is in this movie. Yeah. It's insane. Um, yeah, now it's my number seven. fucking rad. Yeah. Your number yeah, seven. Go watch it. My number seven. Um, we've been talking a lot about identity. We've been talking a lot about gender roles. We've been talking a lot about toxic masculinity. And it's time for my toxic masculinity choice on this list, which tackles it better than any movie I saw this year. And not only rips down the myth of masculinity, but rips down the myth of fucking the Knights of the Round Table. We're talking about the Green Knight, baby. Hey, there you go. (laughs) Um, David Lowry's film, The Green Knight. Uh, David Lowry is another one of those filmmakers I absolutely love. He came out with a movie that was on my best of the decade list uh, called The Ghost Story back in 2017. I just think he really, the images for this movie came out. We're going full Arthurian. We're going really medieval. There are talking foxes. There are giants. There's a, a, a big knight made out of a tree that's going to take your head off on Christmas Day. And you see all these images. You see Dev Patel standing on a mountaintop with all these fucking pelts holding this giant goddamn axe. And you're expecting to see the last duel, but in Arthur's time. And it's no. This movie is not that. It's like, we're going to give you the fucking seventh seal. We're going to give you Bergman. We're going to do something that's so much more existential and so much more emotional and surreal and actually give Gawain and give Dev Patel, the who, who plays Gawain, 
a journey through adolescence and a journey through adulthood. And you're going to watch this person that because this takes place in Arthurian time, you just assume to be this paragon of chivalry and hope and honor. And this dude just gets fucking dunked on this whole movie. He just constantly is just failing, 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 trusting the wrong people, getting tied up in the fucking woods, coming on a belt, everything that happens to this dude. And it's all his fucking fault. He sees the most beautiful things in the world, these giants. All this asshole can think to do is ask for a goddamn ride. It's amazing. This movie's so good. He gets a I sick just... animal companion and then fucking tells him to fuck off. Yeah, but I think that that's what this movie, like this movie more than any other thing I saw this year is about ripping down, or actually that's not true. There's a movie higher up on my list that is actually about ripping down myths. Um, but the literal ripping down of Arthurian legend, these things that are held in the like temples of storytelling and, and religion to an extent and, and, and national history and really taking it and re-examining it and bringing it down to a human level and asking us to acknowledge that these people, these you know words on a page that we look up to and model our lives after are people just like us that can that can be fallible and can make mistakes and and can and can truly fail and that the only way to really grow up and to really become a quote unquote man or or to become an adult to grow up is to admit those mistakes and sometimes the admittance of that mistake it's fucking losing your head homie like sometimes this is what happens <laughs> like i don't know what you want me to say um but yeah this movie also just looks amazing shot beautifully um the, the score by Daniel Hart is not getting enough talk uh, these days. I think the score is incredible. Uh, but yes, I highly recommend it. It's out on VOD now. It's a beautiful, beautiful meditative movie. Check out The Green Knight. Good show. What three. is your number? It's your number three. Yeah, Lauren, talk it. on it. Talk love- on it. Lauren, you are surprising me. Really? I'm glad I, I can am, still yeah. do that after six There's years. There's still new things. Um,. Yeah, I agreed at literally everything you I'm, just said. I'm just so happy that I'll get to rewatch this a lot. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. This movie is, first of all, gorgeous to look at. Um, but also, is I, I again, I, I love the way that it plays with your expectations going in. Um, and the amount, like, the thing that I keep thinking about with this movie is just he's on this epic quest seeing beautiful things. And you're right. he He doesn't even know why he's doing it. Mm-hmm. I think that's why. It's the emptiness of it. Um, and I, I think that when it all comes down to that moment, there's a moment where a character asks, is this all there is? And then someone asks them, what else ought there be? Um, and it's just that emptiness of like, of, of questing that feels uh, crucial to everyone's journey through life. Honestly, just feels like we are all just kind of on these long journeys and and we are looking past all of the the journey itself and just going towards this ending but we don't even know why we're doing it someone Mm. asks him why he's doing it like joel edgerton's character asks him why he's on this quest why he's coming for like coming to be killed after a year um and he he answers honor with a question mark he doesn't even like. I just. I just. He doesn't believe it. it. He, he doesn't. doesn't he it. won't. It's what you should say, but he hasn't exactly. gotten to the point in his life, maturation-wise, where he knows what that means. Exactly. And you don't ever see that in movies like this. He's on the journey of a hero, but he has none. He doesn't understand why heroes are heroes. Um, 
I don't know. There's so much to this movie. There's a, there's an am- amazing flash forward sequence that happens that I don't want to ruin for anyone. I I want to say very little about this movie that you haven't already said because it's it's definitely one to just be ex- to just experience. Um, the visuals are some of the most incredible shit I've ever seen in my goddamn life. Um, yeah. The and it's got the most handsome man in the world. But I think this movie is saying such incredible things about morality and pr- and purpose and about mortality. Um, and just, I, I don't know, I, I, I keep coming back to it and, and thinking about images that I saw or, like, lines from it. I keep thinking about that line of, like, is this all there is? <laughs> that yeah. it's, like, it, it, and that this is a character that, as you said, like, has been revered forever, is a hero. And it just feels empty because even he was a person that just fucked up a bunch and didn't know why he was there. And isn't there something kind of unique about that? Like, isn't there something about that we all kind of feel that way, you know? And there's there's an emptiness in that, but isn't there also kind of a comfort to that? That everyone feels a little bit empty and aimless. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I just, I think that's, I I just think it's really interesting. I really like this movie a lot. Also, shout shout out to Sean Harris's, version of king arthur i just thought his his uh, yeah. portrayal of king arthur was really well, I mean, warm the, yeah the historical yeah. time Beautiful. period was was crafted so beautifully and also just shout out to those prosthetics because like that the green knight was an actual was was in the room that that night that, that yeah, was, was just in the room none wild. of that was cgi none of that was cgi just pure craft i'm i've got season tickets to everything that david lowry ever does um let's get that straight so yeah man I yeah. I've loved literally we've been everything big, since Pete's Dragon. We've I again I feel like yeah. I need to say this again. Pete's Dragon underrated. Watch it. <laughs> it's very good. It's very yeah. good. I, it made me cry within five minutes, y'all. It's so good. Yeah, Lauren's sucker for dragons. Uh, Eric, what's dragons. your number? What's your number six? Well, speaking of dragons, my six was Power of the Smog. So that <laughs> yeah. is yep. That is Lauren, set for me. What was your number six? My number six is your number one, Ian. So we're going to talk about it Ooh. later. We'll talk about it later. Ian, what's your number six? Well, then six? we're back to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so there are movies like we just spoke about with The Green Knight that are about the toxicity of myth-making and the toxicity of masculinity. And then there are movies about the toxicity of the binary itself and of gender itself. And folks, I'm talking about Titan. I'm talking about Julia Decorno's movie. <laughs> I really movie. thought you were going to go Matrix Resurrections for a second. And I was like, oh, man. I was like, big upset. <laughs> <laughs> what a take. Spoiler alert. I do love the Matrix Resurrections. Ian and I um, are in agreement on that. Matrix Resurrections rocks. <laughs> uh, okay. So one thing that we got in so much, uh, like, it's like plentifully this year, was we got so many really bold and great directed movies like just like a, a lot of really well directed films uh julia decorno won the palme d'or at the Cannes film festival with titan the movie did not even make the short list at the academy this year uh which is fucking tragic because this movie is one of the most audacious things i've ever seen in my life i my mind was blown my jaw was on the floor for most of this movie sometimes not in a good way sometimes because i was watching something <laughs> I would because I was watching something that was genuinely upsetting or that I was that was really, really I, I didn't know where it was coming from and I didn't know why the movie was showing it to me and I didn't know what was going on. And it was like once I kind of let myself go with the movie and and you you can tell from minute one that you're in good hands. That Julia Decorno just knows what she's doing. 
And it's very much, much like her first movie, uh, like Raw from 2016, you just kind of trust that something that's going to be this heavy and have this many ideas in it, heavy's the wrong word, something that's going to have this many ideas in it and be this bold, is going to know what it's doing. Uh, and I think the the central performance by Agathe Rozelle and uh, by when I get the name by Vincent Linden uh, when he comes in. I don't want to reveal anything about this movie because it, it, I knew nothing going in except. So you're for, just oh, like the trailer. Yeah, but I knew nothing about the <laughs> movie going what in a except wild for some trailer, images. Y'all. What a wild trailer! And the, the stuff online of like, oh, a girl fucks a car, and you go like, I have no clue what that could even look like or how <laughs> that could be manifested in a movie, but whatever. And even me saying it to you now isn't going to ruin anything because when you see it, it's so much crazier than it is when I say it. (laughs) But I just respect the shit out of a movie that did that and made me then have moments where I was so intellectually engaged and thinking about the themes and the images that I was seeing on screen and the performances and the choices, the really tough and really unlikable choices that a lot of these characters make throughout this movie. And by the end, I, I there were moments where I really, like, it affected me in a very emotional way. And it's, you know, I, I, I've been alluding to it at the beginning, but this movie really is one of the most impressive conversations about gender and the 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 benefits and the, the hindrances that, that it causes in the world. And, uh, and and how one can, can actually live a truer, freer life if they're free from considering things in a black and white view. Um, and does it, like I said, in a way that, that really kind of fucking blew my mind wide open. So that's my number Damn. six, Titan. Highly recommend. Uh. So let's go to Eric's number five. I like the pig movie, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> um, number number you five, did pig. You indeed like that pig movie. I that'll do pig that'll, that'll do. do and it and it fucking did <laughs> we I got the spit take we I got the spit take why oh okay. you're a letterbox now those easy jokes should not affect oh you. my god incredible it was unexpected so, it was so obvious but like just i didn't expect it i didn't see it coming so here's here's the lovely thing about pig y'all you go in you're like, oh, it's John Wick, but a pig, and it's Nicolas Cage. And you know what? You know that friend who told you that? They're wrong. Don't listen to them. <laughs> it is not in any way that movie. Um, this is a movie. Uh, this is the only movie I saw by myself in a movie theater on my list. Mm. Uh, wow. It was a very intimate experience. Um, that I, I, I had the day off for some reason, and I was like, you know what? I really want to see this movie. Absolutely. So I just went in. It was like a matinee. There's six other people in the theater, you know? Um, and basically, this movie is Nicolas Cage as a retired chef from the Portland food scene who is in the woods of the Truffle Pig. One night, his Truffle Pig is stolen from him, and he goes back to the city and attempts to find it. And along the way, you learn things about his past career, about his past life, and it is, uh, I think, bar none for me, Nicolas Cage's career performance. I think he is astonishing in it. I think that it has one of, if not my scene of the year, uh, which involves talking about a pub. And I think ultimately this movie just, it was the movie I needed when it came out at the moment. Yeah. I needed to ch- quiet down. I needed to watch a man who truly loves something, lose it, 
and try to recover that loss even though no one else can understand. And people try to take the piss out of him. People try to poke poke little holes in his new life. Uh, say, you know, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you coming back to this? You know, what kind of trauma could have possibly happened? And the way in which Cage plays this character, it just reminds you how you have no idea what kind of day someone is having. You have no idea what matters in their life. You have no idea what happened in their past. And Cage opens when he wants to, but for the most part, he knows what he needs. And everyone he meets in the movie is is absolutely hiding their their same vulnerabilities and fears. And Cage's character is kind of more open with them. He's very comp- content with who he is. He needs his pig. He loves it. He loves his life now. He's okay with it. He had a very stuff wrong in the past, but he's figured out life. And it's so interesting to watch this portrait of a man in that frame of life compared to these people that on the outside we would think have it much more together, have it much more um, stereotypically successful and all these things. But every person is suffering in their own kind of way. And the way in which he uses food or conversation to to draw that out, especially a scene with um, Adam Arkin near the end of the film, is just incredible. Um, mm-hmm. It's like the darker chef, if you will. Uh, <laughs> I, that's I literally yeah. I was like, it's a great double feature with chef. <laughs> it absolutely is. It it also re- it's also reminds you of the beauty of food. Which in a year where you know restaurants were as much of a thing, I was like, God, the artistry in this is really I've forgotten because I haven't seen it happen as much. But it's just quiet, incredible scene work, and I left being like. Every person I talk to, I'm like, listen, the trailers, you're not going to get it. You're going to laugh. Like, I, I went and saw um, all three Lord of the Rings back to back to back at the music box this year. One of the greatest days of my entire life. And before each of them, they had trailers and they showed Pig. And everyone without fail laughed because Nick Cage is now a meme. And mm-hmm. this is the movie. I mean, he's, he's owning the meme status in a movie coming out later this year, which will be fun. But this is a movie where it's like, forget the meme status. Forget what you think you know. This is a beautiful portrait of a great actor dealing with loss, dealing with love, and trying to weirdly help other people discover that by themselves too. It's on Hulu now, streaming, no additional money. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Number five is Pig. Yeah, I also just really quick want to shout out Michael Sarnowski, who's the co-writer and director of the movie. I think the movie's really, really well directed. It's another one that is like it's his first movie or his first you know major feature, um, and just a really really great premiere. I'm I'm really excited for whatever this dude does next. Yeah, really great stuff. Uh, also has like you know a good jerk hole twenty year old kid, which is every movie needs one of those to hate for a while and then end up loving. So, Shout and out. Alex Wolf plays all of them. He's so good, man. <laughs> what great stuff he does. Um, awesome. That was your number five, Lauren. Number five. What is your number five? My number five was The Last Duel, which we've already talked about. Yeah! Well, well, well. That's right. My number five was The French Dispatch, which we've just talked about. Oh, so, Eric, us. we're on to your number four. We're back to Eric again. All right, y'all. Movie theaters were gone. <gasps> Wait, are we twinsies? And then movie theaters were back. Because you needed to be in a motherfucking movie theater to watch Dune. <laughs> Number four is Dune. Eric Twin. That was my number four. Yes. So full disclosure, this is my number two. (gasps) Y'all, welcome to the Dune cast, motherfuckers. This movie rocks, okay? I'm high on spice. (laughs) So uh, I want to say, I think it's, I want us to all go through our histories with it because I, I, like everyone else, when it was announced. Clear out the lane for the next 45 minutes. Here's the thing. (laughs) I bought the book intending to read it. 
like everyone did. Did I finish it? Fuck no, I didn't. But I got enough to, like, know I'm going to dig this world. And I had a, a full vacation for my 30th birthday to Disneyland. I, I flew in on a Saturday afternoon and I said, Ian, we're going to Dune. <laughs> I got off the plane, got in the car, went to an IMAX screening of Dune, and I awakened. The first hour and a half of that movie, my brain is like, is this the best movie I've ever seen? Multiple yes, times. Eric. <laughs> like, yes, Eric. Vill yes. Like, Villeneuve understands, Denny Villeneuve, the director, understands scope. The Lord Villeneuve? The Lord Villeneuve. Like the fucking, understands. Like the Chancellor like, Villeneuve? <laughs> the, uh, we should be proclamations everywhere he goes now. The scale of this movie with the size of things, the worms, the ships, the everything is key. The actors are perfectly cast. No one else would make sense in any of these roles. The action is great. The scenes are great. The world building is second to none. It is it is part one of a hopefully part 18 quadrillion uh, part movie series. Anything Villeneuve ever wants to do, give him all the money to do it. Get your ass to the biggest screen with the best sound that exists. And everyone playing at home, ting another box in your Timothy Chalamet counter. Dude, fucking rocks. Also, Oscar yeah. Isaac, fucking rocks. Uh, guys, talk about Dune. Talk about why this movie's amazing. Uh, Lauren, you want to go next or you want me to? What can, what can I say that hasn't been said? We love the world building. We love Boom. the build. We love Boom. the dialogue. We love the Damn. special effects. We especially love my girl, Rebecca Ferguson. Lady Jessica! Jessica, Jessica, the, Jessica. The fucking... I, have, I had no experience with the book Dune. None literally whatsoever. Um, I First trip to Arrakis. Pretty, pretty close to cold. And I loved it. Um, Bam! Sometimes I just like to sit back and have, go on, like, a travel tour of a other planet where they, like, tell yes. me how to live on this planet. And yes! I'm cool with that. I don't need shit to happen. Sometimes I just want someone to explain to me how, how spice farming works. And I want to see them explain to me their little cool desert suits that, like, reuse all the water and keep you mm. cool. I'm like, that's fucking sick. I love Still suits movie. are reusable as this fuck. This movie is a masterclass on how to deliver information in an interesting way. Um, they always like show you up front what the thing is and then contextualize what you saw later it's so it's very much the way to do it that's the way to fucking do it i don't know what the thing is that this is called ian you'll i'm sure you'll tell me but the scene at the beginning that's the test where he has to put his the gum jabbar lauren that's when the uh the priest mother from the yeah. Benny jesuit school comes down the reverend mother obviously played by charlotte rampling and, and she gives young paul atreides the test of the gum jabbar <coughs> where he has to stick his hand into a box and not remove it no matter how painful it's going don't to bitch out prince yeah it was fucking Ugh! that scene is like my scene of the year I didn't always understand what people were saying, but they did say it incredibly well. And I always understood what was happening, even if I yes. didn't understand what was being literally said. Um, Timothy Chalamet is extremely good. Anyone who is skeptical on Timothy Chalamet, I genuinely think his work is really good. People have pointed out that, like, oh, he doesn't have a ton of dialogue in this, but I think he's doing so, so much um, with a character that's pretty thankless on the page. Honestly. Yep. This Give is, him this the is water. Where a lot of the point of this character is subtextual, um, and then I'm sure Ian will talk about how it is it is a meta commentary on like the like the the, the hero journey myth. Um, 
But I just want to say that, like, I, I think Timothy Chalamet is really good. The scene where he does the gum jabard, there he's this amazing moment where, like, the pain starts to kick in and he just does a little, like, smile, like, oh, fuck. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, was like, and I just was like, okay, I'm in. This movie's great. Um, Fear's the mind killer. Here we go. I Fear's can't the wait. mind killer. I cannot wait. And honestly, guys, this is, honestly, if you haven't seen Dune, this isn't really a spoiler, but I want to see Timothy Chalamet ride a fucking sandworm so bad. So badly. So, I, like, I need it. More than words can possibly express. Yeah. I want to see people ride this goddamn sandworm, and I will not rest until I see it. Ian, uh, you have Ian, the Ian, tell us why Villeneuve is perfect for ending a movie where a character makes his uh, first and ever only choice after a magnificent duel. I don't, guys, sometimes just bigger <laughs> is better. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, I. Sometimes I need to get smacked in the face and be reminded that I'm a bitch for the Lord of the Rings. You yes! Know, sometimes yes! I need to get smacked in the face and be reminded that I think that, you know, for as cynical as I've become over the years, that I think that the 1977 Star Wars A New Hope is the best example of world building to ever be put on screen. Sometimes oh, I need go! to remind myself that populous entertainment is fucking amazing because it can transport us to new places and tell us classic stories. And that's what Dune does. Like, I watched this movie. I read the book at the beginning of quarantine, thanks to Cole. Um, he had been pressuring me to do it for a long time, and now I had no excuse. And I really loved it. And and I was following along who was playing whom in the movie. And kind of like, that was able to help me kind of, because there's a lot of characters, a lot of mythology, a lot of vocabulary in this movie. I had to follow along with the Dune glossary online. Yep. Uh, very yep. nerdy thing, but whatever. Um, but... I also think we're watching in this movie uh, this visual effects that I've never seen before Mm-mm. on a Mm-mm. scale that that you've kind of never seen before that feels like more like Lawrence and uh, and Arabia than something like you know Infinity War or something like that. Like it just feels so vast and it feels so lived in and and tactile. All of the props feel real and there. There's such a level of sensuality in this movie, and I don't mean that in any sort of sexual way, but like where the movie will well, I'd stop fuck this to movie, show. And don't you not don't you take I mean, that away from very us? Hot. Everybody's very everyone's hot. very but hot like, in this movie. <laughs> but they take their time to show scenes of like Paul putting his hands in the water at Caladan. Yeah. To show like the sound of the still suits walking on the sand. To show the 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 Fremen when they do their amazing fighting technique of oh. coming up from the sand, oh. and you watch them shake <laughs> off the dust around them because you know that those fucking people. Just sprung up from traps underneath the sand. Also, it's very so... team all knives, no guns fights. Way more fun. Yes. Way more fun. That's the thing. Is there's I feel like in a lot of I was listening to a podcast where a director that will come up later on in this episode was talking about how a lot of movies set in the present day lack mystery because of the amount of technology we have at our fingertips. And this movie is one that the story is is so in your bones. You've heard it before. It's Star Wars. It's Harry Potter. It's the Bible. It's the chosen one narrative. It's Joseph Campbell, baby. And so you know what's going to happen, yes, but you don't know how it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And you don't know how it's going to unfold itself. And I spoke about this in our in our fall preview episode about this movie, that I actually think this movie is much less about the power and the fight between good and evil. It's not as easy... And not to disparage Star Wars, but it's not as simple as light side versus dark side, Mm-mm. Mm-mm. empire versus rebellion. The, the Atreides are living and working and thriving within the empire system. 
You know, they're they're a part of the system that they want to rebel against but can't. And then the events of the movie transpire and, and leave the characters in a place where maybe that doesn't have to be the future. Yep. But I do think that ending the movie, there's this obviously this, you know, we talked about this before, but every time I think about it, I, I love it even more. Yeah, when the when it was first yeah. coming out, I was like, yeah, there's no way they're gonna do fucking this whole book in one. There's so many goddamn details they can't do it. So when they were when I had heard that it was gonna be split up into two movies, I was like, oh, okay, this movie will very easily end. Spoiler alert for the next minute, I guess on Dune if you haven't seen it, where I assumed that the movie would end at the sacking of Arakeen at House of Atreides, uh, uh, the palace. And that's not where it ends. God, what a it goes cool on for about another. That just four- was though the sacking of the palace of House of yeah, Trades. Right? Like, it's also just yeah, a fucking epic fucking movie. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. it phonetically all the names feel yeah, so good. Beautiful. In your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it continues on, and it ends actually in a much softer place and a much lighter place, and a one-on-one combat scene. Mm. Um, that we we actually get to track not just with the the climax of the movie no longer being the biggest set piece, the most bombastic set piece, and the thing that's going to be what the momentum of the movie has been leading towards, what this movie, this, you know, budgeted almost $300 million science fiction epic decides to do is end at the logical halfway point for the character. Yes. And even, and, and the movie and the book subvert it so... Actually, because the book ends, uh, the first part of the book ends in an earlier spot. But the movie does the brilliant thing of ending in this quieter place that actually shows us, the audience, you're not supposed to be tracking these grand political movements. Track this kid. Mm-hmm. Because, knew. because that's, knew. What's, that's what still hadn't changed yet. That's why we kept going. Because even though this stuff happened, he wasn't ready. Yep. And now he's ready. And I just don't oh. see a lot of like big blockbusters that subvert my expectations like that. Uh, and I just found it thrilling. There are so many sequences in this movie that I've never seen before. And it does the thing that my number one movie of this year also does. And I'll get to it. Of while I was watching it, I just had this incredible feeling that I had seen it before. And that it was going to live on with me forever. Like I was just like yep. I like cut to forty years from now, I'm still watching this movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. this my my four through one are are all movies. This my cutoff was Dune, and these four can change to bed fang on the day as I'll talk about later. These are all movies where I'm anyone I'm talking to in conversation. I'm like, oh, you seen Dune? Do you want to watch Dune? Like I I want to yeah. be the gateway for this movie to be like I hey oh it's in the theater. Do you want to go? Do you want to go? I mean I've seen it. Yeah, I'll take you though. Like th- mm-hmm. th- this was the experience with Dune. Where I was the person that was like, no, I know he said, see it in the theater. Uh, yeah, he's an asshole. No, do we want to go? It's There's a showing in an hour. Like, mm-hmm. go. Drop what you're doing, watch Dune. Dune Great. 2, day one, in costume. <laughs> <laughs> so that was both of your number four? Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. My number four, don't know if it's on your list. It is Paul Verhoeven's sexy nun movie, Benedetta. Haven't seen it. <laughs> Tell um, me more, Ian. But I'm very, I've been very intrigued based on what Ian has said to me about it. Guys, this movie rocks. Okay. So. Full disclosure: This movie came out when Ian was in a place that was where it was much safer to see movies than it was for me. I was in Florida. I was not going to go to a movie theater. Um, so there's a lot of movies in this particular era that were not on VOD that I completely missed, despite the fact that Ian said some really interesting things about this movie. I'm very intrigued and can't wait to watch it. 
You can rent it now. It's for it's a five dollar rental. Um, so this is uh, Paul Verhoeven's newest movie. Um, Paul Verhoeven, obviously, Basic Instinct, Starship Troopers fame, blah blah blah. Um, and when I first saw the trailer and kept hearing about it, the only image in my head was the Robert Downey Jr. Tobey Maguire trailer from Tropic Thunder of these two <laughs> priests. Like, these Gregorian priests that are, like, having an affair. And I was like, oh, it's the sexy nun movie. It's about these two nuns who get together and, like, you know what? Yes, that's what this movie's about. This movie's about so much more than that. Essentially, like, we're, we're in the plague, right? And this girl, Benedetta, oh, yes, is uh, sold by her parents into a convent in Pescia, Italy convent under the rule of the abbess played by charlotte rampling again another fucking killer charlotte rampling performance this year Good speaking man. in french the entire time and you're like jesus christ you're a genius um, eight people made movies this year is what we're saying they were all great pretty much <laughs> and and over and she feels like she has a very special relationship with jesus right right like a lot of nuns do so cut forward 10 years benedetta is now you know, kind of the the golden the golden standard for nuns at this at this convent. Sure. And yeah, yeah, right. Like a lot of nuns are. Yeah. yeah. And this this girl arrives named Bartolomia. I'm gonna find the name of the actresses right now. One second. Um, but this uh, woman arrives named Bartolomia, and she takes a liking to Benedetta, Ooh. and then the two start to take a liking to each other. Um, the actress is. Uh, Daphne Patakia, who plays Bartolomia, and Virginia Fiera, who plays Benedetta, who is genuinely giving, I think, the best actress performance I've seen this year. Awesome. Uh, spoiler alert for the Nazis. But so what ends up happening is not only is her sexuality and her romantic life awakening by meeting this young woman, but also she starts to have visions from Jesus that make her start to go through the stigmata. And it makes sure. everyone in the convent have to question whether it's re whether whether Jesus this person they believe in every day that they pray to every day has actually chosen one of them to be his next prophet or whether this bitch is just lying <laughs> and, the, and the movie is about it's like yes it's a sexy nun movie but this movie is about how n not just religious institutions, but institutions <laughs> are fucking hypocritical bullshit. And it's just this incredible, so many scenes of being like, well, I was touched by Jesus. That's how I got these holes in my hands. And they're like, yeah, but like you did, like you did that yourself, right? It's like, nah, dog, this was Jesus. And the best part about it is the, when you think the movie's going to zig and she's going to start to feel guilty or something's going to happen that's going to make you feel like, you know, it's, it's, it's no, she drinks her Kool-Aid and she is selling her hype. And she's like, I'm the fucking prophet. Believe it or not. I don't know what you want me to say. I'm Benedetta. And this movie just You're just jealous because you hate me. <laughs> legit. This hate us because you ain't like, us. <laughs> yeah. And the ending is, is so much. Like the movie is so much in very much in a Titan kind of way where there's, it's throwing a lot at you. Uh -huh. There are a couple sequences, <laughs> um, that are very upsetting, that, that were really, really upsetting. But for the most part, that's kind of just resolved to one scene. You get some of the most fun, like just genuine, fun blasphemy. We don't get it enough in movies. You get fun blasphemy and it's fucking awesome. 
And the actors are having a ball. They all know what movie they're in. They're all swinging for the fences. You get Lambert Wilson coming in for the last 30 minutes of this movie. The Merovingian from the Matrix movies. Uh, who had a great year showing up in one other scene. But he's fantastic in this. And it just ended. There were so many moments in the movie where I was watching it. And my mouth was wide open behind my mask. And I was le- like cackling in this theater. <laughs> alone cackling and then something would happen and i would full-on gasp and then some i was just like it was i was i was craving seeing this movie in a theater full of people because i just wanted to turn around and be like are you guys get it this is amazing (laughs) are you here now it's amazing i want to watch it every day it's so good um it's so fucking good i just want everybody to go see benedetta it's so fucking good everyone go see it it's so much fun. Um, great. Eric, that's your number three. Is it time? It is. I think it's time. Uh, great. Lauren, are you okay with this? Yeah, it's my number two. Uh, it's my number eight. Here's the thing. Steven fucking Spielberg makes good movies, you plebs. Uh, West Side yep. Story. Um, I think it's safe to say we, the three of us, and the movie going public as a whole... We're, we're skeptical when West Side Story was announced. They're like, here's the, you know what 2021 needs? It's Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner doing West Side Story. And we're like, all right. And basically, basically accepted perfect movie from when it was back. Um, slightly problematic, potentially. A couple of white dudes some, making a thing. Some brown face. All right, yeah, I don't like it. You don't want to, you don't like to see it. And then I was like, here's the deal. The reviews were good. You know what? I'm going home for the holidays. I'm going to take my mom and dad. We're going to see West Side Story. And I ascended to the heavens. I would like to also say that Eric saw this because I was preaching the gospel of West Side Story in our text thread and saying, y'all better get to the fucking theater and see this movie. And I trusted Lauren. Yes, you were first. You were the Benedetta of West Side Story. Let's be clear. you. You were. You um, came here. You came here to fucking die for our sins, like our Lord and Savior Benedetta. I did. <laughs> this movie is fucking incredible. Like it is. It is the, the the best stupid way I could describe this movie was two little star emojis, and in the middle, I just said cinema. Like this is a <laughs> fucking movie ass movie. It is shot. Yeah. Perfectly. The punch-ups are amazing. The music is Steven Sondheim, you fucking morons. It's incredible. The acting performances are exactly what they need to be. It is a pitch-perfect, not even a retelling. It's, it's a reconceptualizing, a rethinking, a re-choreographed version of one of the most famous movies of all time. And it is at least as good, if not better. And that shouldn't be possible. I, my, you, you said your mouth was open behind your mask, Ian, right? I'm watching West Side Story, same thing. My mouth dropped open multiple times during this movie. The first 20 minutes were astonishing. The America sequence was amazing. The dance in the gym, the, like, the songs, the, just everything, everything happening just, just put me on another plane of existence. Rachel Zegler is going to own Hollywood for the next 30 years. I'm so excited we got to see the beginning of it right here. And I was just, ugh, like... I understand now, like, after Lauren saw it, the frustration you felt not being able to know that anyone else had witnessed it. I got out and I was like, 
is everyone I know seeing this? Because you need to. I was like, who needs to go to a theater? Who needs to go to see this? I will take you. We should go. You need yep. to see West Side Story. It was just, as someone who has no huge love for the original, it was fine. It was not one of my movies growing up. Mm-hmm. Respected it, but it's not my thing. I wept. I cheered. I got the soundtrack immediately after I, I went out. I was just, like, I was blown away that this worked so well, and I felt like a fucking moron not trusting Steven Spielberg to make this movie. Uh, yeah, so Lauren, you had it one spot higher. This movie's perfect. Yeah, this movie fucking rocks. I don't know what you want me to say. <laughs> um, from pretty much minute one, you're just, like, you're in, like... You just have the feeling of like, oh, I'm in the hands of the like, I'm in the hands of Stephen fucking Spielberg, and how Stephen Spielberg? (laughs) Holy shit! How dare we ever have doubted that he had this in him? Um, I think it was really interesting because I think when the news first came out that he was doing this, I think everyone was was a little bit worried. First of all, because we weren't sure how relevant West Side Story was going to be in this day and age or if we were past it especially in a year where in the heights came out which was also excellent another one of mm-hmm. my honorable mentions because i really, mentioned, really, yep. really really adored in the heights um and where i think a lot of people were wondering steven spielberg's never done a musical before it seems like an odd choice and then i felt so fucking stupid like five <laughs> minutes in because <laughs> steven spielberg was meant to do musicals and it seems so obvious once you see it. He is just he's a filmmaker that has the ability to <coughs> tap into real emotions but make them larger than life but still feel earned. Um and you look at any of his movies and he's doing that. Everything is feels very real and feels very filmic but does feel slightly larger than life. You talk about like I, I remember watching a featurette of behind the scenes on Jurassic Park where um Sam mm. Neill was talking about how when you're on set with him as an actor as a film actor you can feel a little bit like um he like you're doing too much um because he'll have these ideas of like i want you to stand up take your hat off and turn and you're like but that doesn't feel like real life but you have to even if it's spielberg is talking about how it's like you have to trust it that with the camera movement with this like sweeping music that we have with everything that exists around it trust that you're in good hands and the movie that i'm making is meeting you is coming up to meet you and coming up to support you. So he is already so adept at making these larger-than-life choices work in action movies, in dramas, in coming-of-age stories. And so once you add mu- like musical theater to it, it just feels like a seamless transition. I-, I think the thing that Ian and I talked about after we saw the movie, um, because I saw this with my parents, was absolutely goddamn blown away like goosebumps the whole time and then i was like ian yep. i'm taking you to the theater to see this the thing that ian and i talked about um, worth it huh worth it was that it feels like he has been thinking about this movie for decades mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. it feels like this movie and not in any type of way that, that sacrifices spontaneity no um it feels like this movie is storyboarded so impeccably I think that you can, something that, that modern filmmakers in the movie musical have been taking for granted is that when you are choreographing um, for the screen, you have to choreograph with the camera in mind. You have to have, the, the camera is another dancer. 
And this yeah. is a movie that understands Ooh. that. I also just think it's incredible <clears throat> that a movie is like there was an above, like a, a sweeping shot from above that you could tell was not done by a drone, but was done by a fucking crane. Like thank, like it did just Spielberg great. fucking buy a crane? Yeah, because he must have. it's all over this he movie. He must and it's have, and he yeah. used it. Um, I, he, just, he knows how to get performances out of actors and how to calibrate them with everyone else and with the music. It's it's colorful. It's beautiful. The new script editions by Tony Kushner, I think, really deepen it in, in some really, really fascinating ways mm-hmm. um, and say new things. I love that it's a version of Officer Krupke that is engaging. First of all, really catchy song, really well choreographed. Brian Darcy is, James as well. But that is engaging with, um, like, the song itself is engaging with these, like, these cycles that that um, mm. that specifically mm-hmm. wh- these like white gang members engage in and indoctrinate a new member in in the action of the yeah. song of teaching them oh. like the world doesn't care about you this is how the system fucks you over but by actively teaching him that they teach him to disengage with the very privilege that they are allowed to go through that system to the degree that they that their rivals the sharks would never be allowed. Um, and I always love a version of Officer Krupke that, that makes that text and that really like puts that into effect. Um, and I love that the movie is not necessarily, Ian and I had a little bit of a debate about this, um, is not a movie that is like interested in redeeming the Jets because I think the Jets are the bad guys in this situation. I think in any uh-huh. version of West Side Story, they're in the wrong. And a it's group not interest- of fucking white nationalists <laughs> not, go up against but, but, these but, but nice Puerto not, Rican kids. It's not interested in redeeming them in any way or making you like, I don't think it's interested in saying these two are the same, but I think it is interested more than any version of West Side Story um, that I've seen before in how they justify their actions to themselves. So it's not necessarily how to get them out of it, but it's how these people become the way they are and how how the system enables them to not be confronted with a way to break out of it. Yeah. so and which I found just like incredibly interesting. I think Rita Moreno is an, a fantastic addition. Oh, um, so it made good. Made me care about and become interested in characters that in the stage show I've never been interested in. I genuinely think Riff and Bernardo are fascinating in this movie. <gasps> Mike Face Shout plays Chino. Riff. Also, <laughs> like the Rumble. Uh, oh, young, young, yeah, young Mulaney's great in this movie. Says <laughs> Riff. He's spectacular. I think the choreography is the MVP of this movie, though. Yes, um, this is what yes. I was going to talk about. Justin Peck. Yeah. Talk Justin about it. Um, it, it. Again, this this choreography that can look a little silly, and I think it is a movie that knows that it can be a little silly, um, but there is something about the way that he has crafted this choreography to seem not like a dance. Like It is a dance, but the way that it is a, um, a physicalization of a restlessness within people yep. and like this energy mm-hmm. that is building up that, that has to come out in some way. And the way that he's kind of not just used ballet, but used modern dance to kind mm-hmm. of influence that and really put every bit of choreography on motion, on walking down the street. We are constantly propelled forward. It creates this momentum and this sense of of unstoppable momentum. Like, they, like yes. we, the entire movie, we are headed towards something that is impossible to stop. Um, and there's a tragedy to that. Just because it's already it's it's too late where where we arrive and it's not interested in like how do we stop this it's how did we get here and how do we stay here and what what does that momentum come from, um, and so really the moments like in the rumble where it's just a fight they feel like a natural extension from the dance it doesn't feel like we stop one and go into the other 
it is a natural escalation of the energy is is what's causing them to fight it's not we yeah. dance until we fight it's we dance because that is something that is within us and and as we hype ourselves up to actually physically fight um, yeah and, and dance is used for so many purposes in this movie like dance mm-hmm. is used to entice and flirtation dance is used for aggression dance is used for status like that that mm-hmm. gym scene they're dancing at each other as much as with their partners they're dancing mm-hmm. at the gangs the beginning of the movie is dancing at the world is to show mm-hmm. you power the dan- the the one of the most Im- impressive sequences with the gun where tony and and riff mm-hmm. are trying to get the gun one the best use of dust in a movie and i know dune mm-hmm. came out this year but that's the best use of dust um <laughs> like it is used as as threat and i think mm-hmm. at the end of it when when you've danced all you can you've used all the threat you can in dance then the shift from dance mm-hmm. threat to oh my god now there's a knife and someone will die is harrowing because mm-hmm. we have accepted every bit of threat every bit of power dynamic and then it it somehow goes up another level in a movie mm-hmm. where everyone who's seeing it 90 percent of people who's seeing it know what is going to happen there are still stakes there are still intensity mm-hmm. and it is all within the storytelling that i think lives most within that choreography yeah, and I think that uh, this is the last thing I'm going to say, and then we will, I promise we will move on. Um, I think that's. I haven't talked about it yet. I, I want to no, talk I mean, about I it. You. it <laughs> and I will let Ian say his piece. I promise. Um, I think that the the scene that Eric just mentioned with the gun, which is the song "Cool," um, is a total reinvention of that scene, um, and I think is is a perfect example of why I think this version is an improvement upon the stage play specifically or not an improvement upon the stage play but is the perfect translation to film um on the stage that is a number that is just about we stop the show and do this number we show off the dancing it is a mood piece more than anything it's just we are feeling this way uh and we are trying to calm ourselves down but the movie understands that we can't just stop this movie to do a mood piece right now we have to put action on it so by reinventing that scene to have a forward momentum and to have a conflict within it and to create a one, two, three beat of the song, it makes that song feel essential um, to a, in, an, in a cinema medium where our suspension of disbelief in that particular regard doesn't stretch as far. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's just a really smart understanding of what makes a good translation from stage to screen. It's just a really expert way of like understanding what works and what does not in making something visually interesting on the screen for a musical. It's really, 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 and especially when you watch like something like Dear Evan Hansen, where it's just like, we're just gonna put a camera on you and you sing the song. It's like, no, there's so much possibility. I we're think, not to honorable mentions yet. Is. You can't talk about Evan Hansen yet. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is just full of like, what is possible if you are creative and you understand the material? And I was yeah, just blown I- away. I want to give a special shout out. You mentioned one of them, Justin Peck, who did the choreography that I think, yeah, it's it's dance as aggression more than it's dance as anything else. It really does feel like you like you said, Lauren, like their bodies just need to take space up. And I think that all of that has to do with uh, the, the my what I think of the two other MVPs of this movie. Janusz Kaminski, obviously, who's Steven Spielberg's longtime cinematography partner. Uh, did Schindler's List, Catch Me If You Can, Minority Report, a whole bunch of great Spielberg movies. Good but, shit. Good shit. Um, <laughs> he films this movie, and him and the uh, Adam Stockhausen, who's the production designer of this movie, did what I, I never realized, kind of what you could do with this story, of by setting it literally on the Upper West Side, at the part, like, uh, where Lincoln Center is getting built in the mm-hmm. 60s, 
it is now this area that has not just become pretty gentrified by Puerto Rican uh, immigrants that are coming into the country, but it's also a lot of old buildings that are getting torn down, leaving the jets more and more displaced than they thought they already were. This movie looks like fucking Mad Max. And you have this yeah. musical that takes place in essentially a dystopia, but it's New York City, and you're constantly being reminded it's New York City. And there are just moments in it. Again, this is where I go back to, I think, the movie just feels so considered and so thought uh, thoughtful in its composition, where, you know, Tony is singing uh, tonight, and he mm. walks out onto this like basketball court and the lights come on at the oh. perfect moment, but it's just the fucking dude cleaning the basketball court. It's, it's about finding the beauty in the everyday that is still there while this, you know, just disgusting wasteland is emerging around your home. Um, and, and trying to find things that make sense in that beauty and re realizing that beauty is still there. Um, and that from the rubble, something new can emerge and something, ha you know, that, that's better. And obviously those are the big themes of the movie. But I just think that there was a lot of consideration into this that made it feel so much like I was so happy to be proven wrong by a movie. And, and that's really what West Side Story did for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe I'm overinflating where it'll stay for me in five or ten years. But I remember sitting there about 20 minutes in and being like, I this is genuinely some of the best filmmaking I've seen this year. And I, I yeah. really, really was not expecting it. Mm -hmm. oh, so, yeah. So good. Great. So that was your that number was my, three, My Eric. three, technically. Lauren, yes. what is your three? My number three was The Green Knight. Oh, fuck yeah. Then it's time to talk about my number three, which I don't know if it's going to be on yours because I cheated. I'm doing a tie. You can't do that. Yeah. Yes, I can. <laughs> yes, I can. I'll tell you why. It's two documentaries. And there are two documentaries that speak to each other in tandem. And oh, the two documentaries... No. You, you haven't seen these movies, Lauren. But you aren't can't they, say anything. This is a series, right? This isn't no, it's a movie? Not. No, it's not. Isn't it like a three-part... Isn't it three separate movies, Ian? Lauren, it's a two-hour movie on Apple TV called The Velvet Underground <coughs> by Todd Haynes. Okay. All right. And it's an eight-hour movie on Disney Plus. <laughs> so, the you get son back. of a bitch. You son of a bitch. Oh my so, god! Okay. That is a goddamn miniseries, you <clears throat> son of a bitch. Lauren, I can see why you would think that. <laughs> you said Bo Burnham's Inside didn't count as a movie, but you're counting this fucking miniseries. Get the fuck out, Lauren. Here's the thing: if I can speak from for the reason, genuinely the reasons why I consider this a movie, mm -hmm. go for it. A, I think it's on Disney Plus and you can't market an eight-hour movie on Disney Plus. You have to split it up so that people can think like, oh, this is going to be an event. It came out over Thanksgiving weekend. They wanted people to sit down for three nights and watch this movie. That's what they're doing. But I think more importantly, <laughs> when you watch it, it doesn't feel like a show. It feels like one, it really does feel like one eight-hour long movie. It feels like one story that is told that when the when the episodes quoted the chapters the parts whatever end and there's there's really nothing that says that it's over except for like a timestamp that's like I guess we should give people a bathroom break now we've been going for 3 hours <laughs> like um, take a second it's okay <laughs> um but I want I want to talk about these movies together because I think that these movies I watched the Beatles get back first I, I I'm obviously I'm a huge Beatles fan this movie, I mean, there's really not a ton new that you can say that hasn't already been spoken about it. It's a magical experience watching this movie. 
you're in the room with four geniuses and a bunch of terrible-minded executives just trying to talk them into some of the stupidest decisions you've ever heard about doing a concert in Libya with all of these lights or going to an orphanage, but not the one with the really sick kids, the one with the sick kids that'll appreciate Beatles music. It's so fucking funny. Um, And yet... (laughs) And what you get to watch in that is you watch these four people that are four true geniuses that have reached a point in their fame that has happened so quickly that they're being beleaguered with all of these decisions about the extra stuff that one has to do when they become a superstar, about what the production's going to look like, what the concert's going to look like, what are these other things that are happening. And they all, the only time they come alive is when they're just playing music together. And when you just get to watch them play songs by, by mm. you know, like Chuck Berry or Ray Charles together, or they're doing joke versions of their old songs from other albums. And you just get so many moments in this that you're just like, that I, I, Ian, I'm just so amazed that they have on film and so happy that they yeah. have on film. And it looks amazing. It looks so good. It looks like it was filmed yesterday. It's what? Yesterday? All my trouble seems so far away. (laughs) You're also shocked at the fact that, like, none of them are over 30 when this movie takes place, like, when they shot it. And you're like, all of these dudes had this level of self-awareness and genius at this age (laughs) and access to anything that they wanted. Um, But this the reason I think, again, now I'll go back to the Velvet Underground. The Velvet Underground takes the entire opposite approach to talking about a band. Same exact time period. Get Back takes place in 1969. Velvet Underground takes place between the years of 1965 and 1969. One of them is about 1969 in London and in the English music scene. The other is about 1969 in the Art Deco New York music scene. And it's two totally different approaches to two totally different styles of music that are both in conversation with each other and also completely in reaction to each other. And the cultures that emerge around them, specifically the culture that's discussed in the Velvet Underground, which is, I think, a movie that's not necessarily about the band. Like, weirdly, you watch it and it's less interested in the band The Velvet Underground than the movement that The Velvet Underground was a part of. And the reaction to traditional music, musical tastes, the reaction to the mainstream of cinema and pop and art and anything like that. This movie talks a lot about Andy Warhol, a lot about that scene growing up in the 60s, Nico Case, of course. But it's the style that Todd Haynes films it with. It's almost constantly in split screen where you will have the face of the person talking that's kind of slightly moving. And on the other side of the screen just a slurry of images. Some of them are impressionistic. Some of them are about like, you know, exact references to what the person's talking about. Sometimes it's cartoons. Sometimes it's like, you know, snippets of movies and snippets of other bands playing. It just feels like you get a documentary in get back that is so pure and chronicling such a minute thing, just the making of this one not even a full album, but this one performance down to its minute detail where you literally get to watch for 45 minutes while these dudes struggle to create the lyrics to get back. And it's amazing and maddening and and everything that I want in the world. And then the Velvet Underground, which is throwing so much shit at the screen and giving you a punk rock experience in a movie. And I just think that those two, like they should be required viewing for each other. Just carve out 10 hours and watch all of them. But yeah, I just, I I rewatched a lot of get back yesterday while I was cleaning the house. 
and I just have a smile on my face the entire time. And while all that's happening, you know, I've, I've spoken a lot about this, so I'm going to wrap it up now. But you do get an unbelievable sense of melancholy because what you're watching is it, it is also this is the other movie I was talking about where it's taking down myths. It's not the myth that the Beatles had this big falling out or that there was this this huge event or Yoko Ono or anything. This movie is a living testament to the fact that it's sometimes when breakups happen, sometimes when divorces happen, it's sometimes when things stop. It's not because of one cataclysmic event. It's just a lot of little things yeah. that add up. And that these people may genuinely just be happier with this thing getting let go. And it was important, I think, for me as a fan of anything to get to watch this and get to watch like the strain and the pressure that's put on creators to have to try and outdo themselves mm. and do stuff that they don't want to do just to try and please a faceless group of people that could turn on them at a moment's notice anyway. When the only thing that really matters is just staring at the person across from you and creating music together. It was, it's just a beautiful movie and I think everybody needs to see it. So, yes, Lauren, it is a fucking movie. All right. That's my number three. Eric, what's your number two? Um, all right. This is – Ian, you spoke earlier about populist entertainment and the need to just love it. And this is the moment – where I felt the most alive, I felt the entire year. Uh, you already know where this is going. We're going into full spoiler territory on this as well, y'all. It's fucking Spider-Man: No Way Home. Um, requisite spoiler warning. Three, yeah, requisite spoiler. Two, one. Andrew Garfield's great in this. Uh, yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> uh, they did it. I had this. I so I had the same vibe with this movie as I had with Avengers: Endgame. In the fact where I walked out of the theater, I'm like, they fucking did it. Holy shit. Holy shit. Um, yeah, MVP of this movie is absolutely Andrew Garfield. Um, MVP of this year, again, not a naughty spoiler, is Andrew Garfield. But um, Just won a Golden Globe. Congrats to him. Oh, did he? Oh, he phenomenal. Literally, like, ten minutes ago, won a Golden Globe. Good for him. Well, phenomenal. I love him. Um, the moment where he catches MJ is maybe my most emotional moment of the entire year. Uh, and I think that with this movie, everything that needs to be said about it has been said about it overall. But for me, it is the fact that you simultaneously honored 20 years of Spider-Man nostalgia with the Tobey films. Great. You also honored, while acknowledging the flaws, but not actively shitting on the Garfield films, which is an incredible line to walk that they did perfectly. But also, let Tom Holland be the Spider-Man, the star of this movie, and have the largest emotional journey in any of his films. Um, I thought the supporting cast was great. The cameos were great. Willem Dafoe was fucking elite and terrifying and reminds you so why good. he is who he is. He is that dude that we thought he was. Um, and I don't think I emotionally was ready for... How much I needed an opening night, packed theater, again, fully masked, all uh, uh, Marvel experience after not having one since Endgame. I think Endgame was the peak. The moment where once Matt Murdock showed up and everyone <laughs> cheered, I'm like, oh my god, it's happening again. We, we get this. <laughs> and there's a moment where the three of them have their little, like, they're in their fight and they're like, I don't know if we can do this. All right, Peter 1, Peter 3, all right, let's do this. They all put their masks 
I'm getting fucking emotional talking about this. They put their masks down and they all three jump off the crane and they and they web together and like the theater erupts and I'm like, COVID fucking sucks. These last few years have fucking sucked and oh my god, we're back. I never thought this would happen again in my life, and it did. And I stood up in my seat and I cheered and and people were cheering with me and like God, after a fucking years. Of just not seeing movies with people, of not having Cap with the hammer and the portals opening and Endgame happening again, having a movie that prioritized toxic masculinity, mental health, um, love for other brothers and men crying and hugging each other while punching bad guys, like with a group of people, it was just the most alive I felt in a theater. And I, I thought that was done after Endgame. I thought we'd hit the peak. Obviously, we didn't know. We'd lose it all to the extent <laughs> we did. But to be there opening night is like, you know, people ask constantly, like, do we need these Marvel movies? Like, why is the opening night such a thing? Why does this matter? And to me, like, I, that experience is something that growing up when we do, we are able to get. And I felt electric. And I also think, Days after, I was still thinking about just the movie itself. I think it's very good. I think it's also just a well-plotted movie. I think the sacrifice at the end that Peter makes is heart-wrenching, and I'm very excited to see where it goes. But also, this is such a beautiful coming-of-age trilogy for Tom Holland. And I think Mm -hmm. no matter what he does in fucking Awakening, whatever, Walking Uncharted, Uncharted, whatever happens next for him, I don't know. He seems like a lovely chap. Um, these movies are fucking wonderful, and it led us back into the Garfield Assance, which I'm so happy to be- I watched Social Network the week after! <laughs> like, I'm so thrilled that this existed, and they did it so perfectly, and I just- I- I never want to have too many years go by without this happening in my life, because, oh my god, it means so much. So, No Way Home, number two, 100%. I just have one thing that I want to say. Yes. Mysterio forever. All right, Lauren, <laughs> what is your? I have, I just Where's the scarf, Ian? Was, I'm really jealous that y'all both got the experience of seeing that in a theater. I admittedly watched it on a bootleg because I was staying in Florida. Staying safe, staying safe. <laughs> I was in Florida. Every showing was sold out, and I knew people wouldn't be wearing masks, but I had to see it. So yeah. I'm sorry, world. I watched it on a bootleg. <laughs> I wish I, mean, I had had the experience of being in a theater. I think that I would I would be so much hotter on this movie if I had been there and had that moment. And I'm very jealous of all the people that did. But um, if it's any consolation, really Lauren, I, my sister and I saw this in an open caption screening because every screening in Virginia <laughs> Beach was sold out as well, and I didn't feel comfortable going. So we went to an open caption screening at two thirty in the afternoon on a Monday, and we were the only two people in the theater. So yeah, we saw it in a theater, but we didn't get to have that experience. Yeah. I think the most that happened was when Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire showed up. My sister and I just looked at each other and went, "This is pretty cool." Like <laughs> we're just like, yeah. "This is pretty rad." Okay, I will also cool. say that at the end of that movie, not only did the Spider-Man beat all the villains, but I did take a rapid COVID test the week after, and I was negative, so I also beat the odds. So huzzah! <laughs> My biggest win of the year. (laughs) A super heroic effort. Truly. Very truly. You did it. You beat Omicron that time. Thank you. Uh, Lauren, what is your number? Your number two is West Side Story. My number two is West Side Story. Two-time Golden Globe winner as of tonight. (laughs) 
Holy shit. Look at that. Uh, what, what did it win best picture? Uh, I don't know that we've announced they've announced that one yet, but I know that it did win the two acting awards. For Wait, Rachel for... Ziegler. Oh, Rachel Ziegler, Ziegler won! And, um, oh my gosh, why am I blinking on her name all the time? Ariana DeBose. Ariana DeBose. Oh, they, good! Good! Uh, welcome to our live, our live reaction of the Golden Globes. <laughs> um, but Power the, uh, Dogs, okay. also, our boy Cody Smith-McPhee, Hula Hooping King himself. Fuck yeah, Hula Hoop King! Enthusiast. I love um, him. Yo! My boy! Oh my, my gosh! So, Lauren, your number two is West Side Story. Number my number two is I've got to refocus. Our number two, we're almost done. Our my number two is Dune. So Eric, we are at your number one movie of 2021. So the Golden Globes historically get a lot of things wrong, mm-hmm. but tonight, my friends, <laughs> they have gotten one thing so fucking right. Um, my number one movie of the year is the poster child for the Garfield song. It's Tick Tick Boom. It is the Netflix movie of the Jonathan of the Jonathan Larson musical. I started because it's like it's the expansion of the musical. It is Lin Manuel Miranda's directorial debut, starring Andrew Garfield and a wonderful supporting cast. This is a musical that I had known about in passing. I didn't have a lot of experience with it, um, but I love. I mean, I grew up as a high school theater kid. Really liked Rent. And then was like, okay, I get it. Was fine with it. Um, but love Garfield, love Lynn. So I was like, I'm going to watch it. And I was just, I fell back in love with an art form that I thought had betrayed me, essentially, is what happened. For the last mm-hmm. few years, being out of theater since COVID has given me a lot of perspective. For those of you that are maybe new listeners, all three of us are theater artists. Um, when COVID started, obviously all that shut down and I transferred careers. And since that point, I have really had a sour taste in my mouth for the theater industry. I kind of came up and I'm like, why was I underpaid? Why was I undervalued? Why did I care about this ever? I felt like I had just, maybe I'd made a mistake. And then I watched Tick, Tick, Boom. And I was like, oh, right. That's what I fell in love with. That's why thousands and millions of people dedicate ourselves to... The worst life conditions, some of the worst choices, especially in our 20s and coming up to the fact that I turned 30 the year this came out is no accident as well. Um, The fact that the opening number is all about turning 30. Um, But I was just reinvigorated with the love of this form in a way that I thought was dead. I didn't think it was possible for me to really feel this again. And it's for those of you that have not watched it. It's on Netflix. It's easy to do. Uh, But it is about. Uh, Jonathan Larson, the the writer of the musical, but is also autobiographical, played by Andrew Garfield, basically performing a musical that tells the story of him writing a different musical, and it walks you through the hardships of being a writer, a playwright in New York. Uh, he's poor. His friends uh, are are suffering through the HIV epidemic. This is it takes place in the late eighties, nineteen ninety, which thirty ninety talks about, and it deals with all the hard things that theater life brings you, which. We all forget about when we're talking about the Broadway stars. It's it's the, can I make rent? Is my power going to get cut off and the night before my workshop goes up? Am I working for three years towards a workshop that I'm putting on for free or paying for that will maybe get me seen? Like, But it shows these things because you can't do anything else. Because you 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 got to write a song about sugar. Because you need to treat your diner as a stage. And it is directed so perfectly by Lin-Manuel Miranda and 
this cannot be directed by a person that doesn't love theater as much as he does. And it's so evident in every bit of enhanced theatricality that it brings. Um, the cameos that come in for Broadway stars. The music itself is great. The voices are perfectly pitched for what it has to be. And it is all led by my performance of the year in Andrew Garfield. I think that he had never, never sang before this movie. Which, like, does it matter? No, but also I love football. I love narrative. Like, I, I love the story of a performance. <laughs> and the fact that Andrew Garfield got this gig off of a masseuse he shared with Lin-Manuel Miranda is not lost on me. I think that's incredible. But he sings with such passion. Yeah. He and Lin-Manuel Miranda. That. I did okay, yeah. not know that. Quick story so my time. Face just did some wild shit. <laughs> Quick story time. Andrew Garfield and Lin-Manuel Miranda share a masseuse in New York that is a bunch of stars. One day, Lin-Manuel Miranda's getting a massage. He says, hey, Andrew Garfield's a client of yours, right? And the guy says, yes. He says, can he sing? And the masseuse says, oh, my God, voice of an angel. He's incredible. And Lin's like, okay, great. Lin leaves. The guy calls Andrew Garfield and goes, hey, can you sing? And Andrew says, I've never sang in the music. No, I've never. No, I can't. I've never done that before. But the guy, again, pump up your friends, guys. Hype up your friends. Because then Andrew Garfield <laughs> took singing lessons for a year. They did workshops for six months. The first time, the only one he did was uh, Boho Days. It was the only one he sang by himself because he was so uncomfortable. But he worked on his voice for a year and eventually now just won a Golden Globe for the best actor in a musical. Um, he's very good. He's, like, he's very good. He's genuinely very, he's very good. good. He's very yes. talented and, uh, and he obviously put the work in. He's very good. Yes. So never sang it ever before. Um, but it is just the epitome of what I think this art form can be for me. Mixing theater and film is always very hard. Uh, like mm -hmm. the honorable mentioned Dear Evan Hansen, uh, sometimes fails. But uh, <laughs> this one, I think, really, it is a film. It is not just a stage musical that they're trying to film. It is a film, but it is also honoring theater. The performances are great across the board, and it just really hit me. I, I listen to the soundtrack. I still do on repeat all the time. It stayed with me for days. And it is just one of the most invigorating, wonderful, joyous celebrations that I've seen. And I think that speaks to the year, right? We talked at the beginning about how our movies define our year. This is the most celebratory thing because Jonathan Larson passed right before Rent, like years ago. And this movie is filled with knowing that he's he is passed now, but a <laughs> celebration of the work, a celebration of a legacy. And after a year where there was so much death and so much darkness and so much loss the fact that we can still go forth and celebrate with music and laughter and dance and all these things me i think just was exactly what i needed out of 2021 and i think it's just a beautiful representation of it done by masters of the craft so tick tick boom number one boom love it lauren what is your number one so for a decent amount of time, my number one was West Side Story, and my number 10 was Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, so it was a little neat little bookend of musicals that I was really, really satisfied with. Um, and then Ian recommended a movie. I was like, oh, I've got a few movies left. Ian, are there any of these that I should prioritize watching before our, our top 10? And so I was like, okay, I'll go in. I wasn't that excited by the trailer of this movie. Um, I got your number trick. I got your number. Yeah. And I was like, I had my top 10 list ready to go. And then come on, come on came in with a steel chair and <sighs> fucked everything up. Um, <laughs> yes. I was so blindsided by this movie in pretty much every way. Um, 
I, I again, I just watched this on a whim. It is a, um, it's very much an indie indie movie. I had never seen any of Mike Mills's other movies. I've never seen Beginners. I've never seen. Um, uh, never 20th said twentieth. Twentieth. Oh wow! Women. I have never seen any of his films, so I had I had no idea of what I was even getting getting in for. It was a black and white indie movie. Um, it's starring Joaquin Phoenix and I can think, let me check on the kid's name. Uh, Woody, Woody Norman. Norman. Uh, a and Gabby kid. Hoffman. And Gabby Hoffman of Uncle Buck fame, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah. She's, a kid <laughs> She's a little girl in Uncle Buck. She's incredible. Um, and it is about a, um, basically an Ira Glass type, like a radio journalist uh, played by Joaquin Phoenix who is uh, going around the country interviewing kids about what they think is coming in the future. And I think the all, I believe all of those are actual documentary. Um, those are real kids that they're interviewing. And um, while this is happening, he gets a call from his sister, played by Gabby Hoffman, because um, her husband is basically having a manic episode with his bipolar disorder. She needs to go take care of him. And she needs someone to look after her nine-year-old. And they, they've kind of been estranged a little bit since their mom died a year, a year ago. That's basically the setup. Um, and so he goes and watches her nine-year-old kid. And they bond. And he teaches him through, like, t- like showing him sound equipment and everything. And, again, nothing in this movie is something that I haven't seen before. Like, mm-hmm. I, it is very much a, like, classic cute little indie movie about like an adult learning from a kid again like mm-hmm. nothing in this movie is revolutionary or changing the form at all or going big or like there's no moments of like awe or wonder it is and it's a black and white movie so there's there's not no like colors to draw you in and yet i i, I <laughs> was just so emotionally blindsided by the the authenticity of it i think the the chemistry between the two leads is so incredible and but it, and and it's one of those movies that through small increments of emotion and small moments added up over the course of a movie just created this like seismic shift within me emotionally that movies rarely make me feel um i was legit just like openly crying for about two-thirds of this movie and maybe it's maybe it's because this movie exists in my pocket. Maybe it's because it's about like compassion, and so I see like the Paddington part of myself loves that. Maybe it's because it's about like a podcaster and a radio journalist, and it's because it's about like the the like uncle nephew relationship with a kid who's the same age as my nephew and reminds me painfully of my nephew mm-hmm. to the point that mm-hmm. I like wanted to leap onto a flight and go and run and hug my nephew immediately and like forever um and it's interspersed with these beautiful like bedtime stories that he's telling this kid that he's reading this kid there's this bedtime story that ian you've seen the movie where he's talking about it's just this story about how we come to be on earth and our time on earth and how we leave earth oh yeah really simple but just just like I, i don't know just like reached inside me and felt so like just talking to me. It's a movie about the value of listening too, which I think is really, really beautiful. I was, yeah, was going to yeah. say, I think that that's why the black and white works so yeah. well. There's no images that are really drawing your eye in a way. So mm-hmm. you're forced to just listen mm-hmm. and just be with the movie and be mm-hmm. with what these characters are saying and really listen to how they're communicating with each other. 
which I think is also why making him a podcaster is is so brilliant. Yeah, like, and it's and it's, it's a kid who is so willing to. He's trying to get. The, he's also like trying to interview his nephew so many times, and his nephew's just not really interested in that. He's interested in asking questions, and I think that it's it's again this is nothing revolutionary, but there is something about how children because they do not have any ideas of what's appropriate or not they are able to just ask questions based on what they see of you of and that and by doing that and if you are open to that and you are open to actually addressing those questions that you may not have even asked yourself or that we don't ask each other as adults you can find healing in that and that he is able to see like to say things by the end of this to this child that he's not able to say to himself um, and it's about like the practice and action of compassion, not mm. about just like compassion existing within you, but that it is a conscious choice to open yourself up to that. Um, and that, and that like, you, and it also helped me contextualize, like it changed something within me because I think it contextualized how to talk to children, honestly. Oh, damn. Um, yeah. And which is something I, I really always struggle with. And it's really interesting that I watched this so close to when I watched The Lost Daughter. Um, they're a really <laughs> interesting one-two punch of like, of like, oh, wow, child rearing is horrific. And then this movie is like, yes, it is. But do it anyway, because like mm, there is something yeah. in that if you push through. There is a reward to that. And it does mm-hmm. make you a better person. Not even if it's just parenting, just like being an uncle. You know, I think it's being it's not around one, children. Yeah, it's yeah. A, there is a value to treating children as human beings that have something to offer us in return. I think that's yeah. the thing. It's not yeah. just treating children as like something we need to impart wisdom on, but that they have something to offer us and in our own journeys. And that that and that journey is is forever. And I and I just like I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking about it for such a long time, and I just I, I, I don't know. There's just like there's this beautiful scene also where he learn where he's like looking up on the internet how to apologize to a kid for like yelling at him because he he scared him, you know. And it's just a really beautiful moment of like him literally in <clears throat> front of the kid looking it up and apologizing, and the kid apologizing in return. And it's just this simple act of forgiveness that because we put ourselves so far above children, we're not willing to just get on their level and move past that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a line where, where a character asks another character, um, are you laughing or crying? And I think the entire movie, I was doing both, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it really does like bum me out how like Joaquin Phoenix we, is, is going to be known. His legacy will be these characters that are, in in distress or that are really intense or evil or violent when he has a performance like this in him that is maybe the, the, the one of the warmest performances i've ever seen um mm. that i love so much and that is so open with this kid like i think his, his chemistry with woody norman is is truly something beautiful to watch and something to aspire to of like i yeah. watch that and i'm like that's what i want if i have a kid or if I like, or even with my nephew that I have right now, it it taught me something of how to go into the world, and talk to people, and how to become better from that. And mm-hmm. and there's this is a movie of such uh, this is a year of such spectacle in movies that I loved so much, but somehow it was the simplest movie in the world that like felt like it truly changed something within me, and and that's why it's my number one. I think it's a great choice. A movie again that. that was. 
on my that was my number uh 10 for a long time until i saw west side story and it kind of knocked it off oh i ruined uh, it for myself i know you really did because otherwise we were gonna get a lot of come on come on talk there will be a lot more come on come on talk during the naughties because as mm-hmm. i told lauren right before we began there is crying in the mm-hmm. last 20 to 30 minutes of this movie mm-hmm. sure and then there is the full-throated sobbing that I did on mm-hmm. the drive home from the movies after oh, yeah. I left, not knowing why I was feeling that way or mm-hmm. reacting that way, because it's ultimately a pretty happy ending. Yeah. But I still was just, just weeping. There's some crying in movies that you can feel coming because the movie is like orchestrating that within you. And then sure. there's other crying that comes from just like, it's like when I watched Life of Pi for the first time, where it's just like, this is coming from somewhere deep within me that I didn't know was feeling something it just pressed some button within me that just was like deep emotion like my heart was racing and I was just like it it was like that epiphany feeling Um, yeah it's the it's the feeling I think the last movie that really feels like it got that way was uh, with me was like Lady Bird and I Mm -hmm. think it's a sense of recognition it's a sense of like oh this movie was able to communicate something to me that I didn't know anybody else ever felt yeah, it's a, again, it's an interesting double feature with with Lost Daughter and this because Lost Daughter was like that's a problem and like a fear that I'd never seen portrayed, and then Come On, Come On was like I'm showing you the pathway, in a way that I had never seen of like this is a pathway forward, yeah, um, in a completely different way that I that I didn't see coming, and I I just I think it's it's a movie that I I really value in its ability to show you just in a very simple way how to be better. And how to be better, not just to other people, but to yourself. And to allow yourself to grow in a kind way. I love that. Yeah. I also love that I was right. Uh, now yeah, time to move I, on. I have, I have you to thank for it. You truly, it does help. truly <laughs> fucked up my entire top ten list. And I, I, I like agonized over it. I was like, should I, just, should I like really put this movie at my number one? But I was just like, yeah, yeah. Honestly, like, gut feeling. I, yeah. I left. The, I even got like halfway through that movie. And I was like, man, if I, Lauren needs to see this ASAP. But, uh, <laughs> um, but from one relationship with a child to another relationship with a child, my number one movie oh, of the no, year, folks. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh my God! That's wow. right. Wow. Okay. Um. It is Paul Thomas segue. Anderson's masterpiece. That's right. I said it. Capital M underlined boldened masterpiece. All right. Clear the lane. Pizza. Ian's about to talk for an hour. All right. I got to pee anyway, so this works. We've been going long. Um. But um. No. The. There's been a lot talked about this movie. There's been a lot talked about the age gap between the two lovers in this movie. The the Alana Haim character and the Cooper Hoffman character. I'm going to put all of that to the side for right now and just talk about how this movie feels like, uh, I, I think I saw it at a great time too, because it feels like when my dad tells me stories from his childhood, which on one hand, I feel so privileged to get to hear, I feel so lucky to get to hear stories from his childhood. He has so many great rambunctious stories of him running around doing fucked up stuff with his friends. Um, and I watch him and his friends and my uncle tell these stories and they're laughing and they're, they're so full of joy. And yet what they're telling me is computing in my 2022 brain as red alert horror. <laughs> <laughs> like full stop. This is terrifying. You guys, how did you guys survive? That's what this movie is. And I think that this movie is getting kind of like really 
uh, glazed over by a lot of critics being just like, this is such a great feel-good send-up to the 70s. What a cool, fun, groovy time we're having in Licorice Pizza. That is not this movie at all. I think that is an aspect and a way that you can watch this movie, and I think that's the genius of it, is I could turn this on in the background right now and not think any deeper about what's going on from scene to scene and just be there for good fucking vibes. Or I can actually watch the movie. And realize that in every scene where there is a sense of childlike wonder and adolescent joy, and this movie is pulsating with energy and joy. There are so mm. many scenes of just characters running, and it's that thing when you're a kid, and you're like, you know, like we were talking about with West Side Story, where it's like, my body just needs to move. I don't know where it's going. I just need to run. And that's what this movie feels like in so many ways, where you really go after a while. I have no clue where this movie's going. I have no clue what's really the point of it. Until you get to the end and realize that, like, that's kind of what all adolescence is. It's tunnel vision over things that in the grand scheme don't actually seem that important, but to you at the time, feel like life or death stakes. And that is where I'm going to bring back in the age gap between the two characters. The Cooper Hoffman character, Gary Valentine, a young pimp hustler. <laughs> He's a 15-year-old. <laughs> a 15-year-old Actor, oh, you mean snapping necks bed. and cashing checks? <laughs> <laughs> Actor, waterbed salesman, pill, pinball pimp. He's here to do everything. I'm and, so um, excited to see this. <laughs> it's so good. And then Alana Haim, uh, a 25-year-old. Uh, like, and but that's the thing. Like you don't really know what other like honorifics to put on her because she doesn't know. And the beauty of having that age gap at the center of this movie, while yes. There is a romantic element involved. It's not played as explicitly as I think a lot of people are, are saying that it is. But uh, what it shows is that for, at different stages in your life that are not that far apart, things feel like they're life or death or they're, they feel like they're nothing. The thing that means something to a 15-year-old could mean absolutely nothing to a 25-year-old. And something that could be a cool story or a bragging point for a 15 year old could be a, like a legal life or death for a 25 year old. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that, that line between joy and, and uh, like effervescence and true danger, it like that's being a teenager. And that's what be, that's what adolescence is for me. That's what adolescence felt like for me, where I look back on stories from my youth and things that I did that I'm kind of amazed I got out of alive uh, or, or that, you know, people didn't end up as hurt as they could have. Uh, and, and it's there are just so many moments in this movie. I'm trying to deliberately avoid spoilers because I know Eric hasn't seen it and a lot of people haven't seen it yet. But it's. It's a movie that I've, as soon as I saw it, I was just so happy to live in this world with these characters. I love them all so much. I, and and it's shot so beautifully. The music is perfect. And it just really feels like I've known these people for all my life. And I've known the mistakes that they're about to make. And I've known the things that they're about to win at. And I want... I. The same way that I'm yelling at the screen watching Get Back, trying to be like, no, it's it's Tucson, Arizona. He's from <laughs> Tucson, Arizona. You haven't gotten there yet. Just say fucking Tucson, Arizona. That's why I felt watching this movie where I'm like, just don't, just don't do what you're about to do. Oh, God. Oh, no. And, and yet, you realize that it's those mistakes and those things that are made at the time that luckily, if nobody does get hurt, or at least nobody gets explicitly hurt, 
that's where those real moments of growth happen. And that's where these people emerge from one part of their life. They, be, they move from teens to adolescence and from adolescence to adulthood. And that liminal space where both of these characters are living, but at different stages, and then they just happen to catch each other mm. is just such a beautiful thing. Uh, I, I just fucking loved this movie. It's so warm. It's so great. It's also so fucking funny. Uh, and, you know, the rumors are true, folks. Alana Haim, real fucking good at acting. <laughs> uh, this is a genuine, as somebody who's, Paul Thomas Anderson's my favorite filmmaker. Uh, it's, it's one of the best characters he's ever written. It's wow. so complicated. Wow. She's so messy. She's really great. I, I think that, I've told Ian this, like my main takeaway is that like the movie at the beginning is billed as Gary's movie, but it's absolutely mm-hmm. Alana's movie. Like yeah. you in the second half, mm-hmm. I was kind of like Gary who like more of Alana. Um, yeah. And I think the, the movie feels the movie. that way too. Yeah. So Lauren, this was your number six. Do you yeah. have anything you wanted to talk about with it? Um, You've really hit a lot of it. I think that it's another one of those movies that while I was watching it, I was like in the process of digesting it. And then Ian and I had a really great conversation about it. And now I'm really excited to watch it when it hits uh, video on demand. It's a very it's a very similar experience to what I had with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where I I kind of didn't care for it at first because I didn't know what to make of it. And I, because I think I had come into it with a certain set of very specific expectations of what it was going to be. And so the second time I watched it, I was able to meet it on its level. And it's also a very episodic movie in the same way that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is. Um, so I very much look forward to watching it in the future and kind of just having it on and being able yeah. to watch it. But there's, there oh, is Oh, it'll some... be on, Lauren. Yeah, Trust. I was, it was interesting <laughs> because I, I definitely came out of this feeling very conflicted about, about just specifically the age gap. Um, sure. But when I, I kind of contextualized it differently as like it is not necessarily about any type of consummation of romantic like anything, that it is more about this idea of both of them dealing with different ways of wanting to be wanted. That it's not mm-hmm. actually about being together. It's just wanting to feel seen and wanting to feel like someone cares about you. It's Gary wanting to feel like someone sees him as an adult. And her wanting to feel like someone sees her as still, like, a kid. Honestly. Because yeah. like, yeah. the way that, or, that you talked about it, you put it in a really interesting way that, like, Gary is this 15-year-old who wants so badly to be in his 20s. And she's a late 20s person who is, or, like, you know, 25, I think, who yeah. wants so badly to be an adolescent again because she feels so lost and purposeless. And yeah, and weirdly, when you're an adolescent, it makes sense to be lost and purposeless. But in a few years of being lost and purposeless, now you're behind. It's sad. And he has all the purpose in the world of wanting to be an adult, but he is a kid and she is an adult and has none of the purpose, but sees this person with all the purpose in the world and all of the, like, I see the promise of the future that they kind of meet in the middle to, like, to <coughs> not even necessarily, like, there's no, like, again, the romance in, in it is so unimportant to me. Like, I don't think there is a romance, the personally. But I do think it's like people that need each other. Because, because, and again, I think it's, it's, yeah, why, I just sorry, saw you I'm almost f- fucking explode. I'm yeah, gonna, that, that was incredible. But because I think it's, no, but I think it's because, I, like you said, you I don't think talk. it is a, I don't <laughs> yeah. think it is a romance. Like you said, I think that's brilliant no, because it's like, it's really not. But it's like when you have a connection like that, when mm-hmm. somebody brings something like that out of you, especially 
when you're between 15 and 25, mm -hmm. speaking personally, how do you not interpret that as something romantic? Mm -hmm. It may not be. You may find out later on down the road that it wasn't and that that was a mistake or maybe that's not the relationship you should have. But at that age, why would you not look at it that yeah. way? That's how we are. That's how we're conditioned to look at it that way. And I applaud this movie the same way that I applaud Red Rocket for knowing that 2022 audiences are going to be watching this with 2022 brain and not bending its story to try and be more politically correct for asking us to really like, like try and like really try and, and dig through the muck on this and see if you can mm -hmm. like, again, I'm not endorsing this and I don't think those movies are endorsing these as like viable relationships, but they're asking us to, instead of just dismiss something outright because we don't agree with it to try and think about why characters would think that this is an okay thing to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that in that feels a lot more honest uh, mm -hmm. about what what movies can do and the questions that it can make us ask about ourselves and about the things that we feel like. I mean, the, what my sister said as soon as we left the movie was she was like, I didn't I didn't like it because I thought if the if the genders were reversed, this would be fucking creepy. And I was like, that's totally right. I think the movie wants you to ask that question. Yeah, I still feel very like, this is a conversation for another time, but I do still feel conflicted about the ending. And I'm still sure. working through my feelings about it. I like everything leading up to it, but I do still feel conflicted about the ending. Totally, totally. That's the totally only thing that, that kept, that's really the thing that kept it from being higher up on my list. Um, yeah. Was that I still am working through my feelings about the ending and what it's saying. I totally hear that. Yeah. Um, great. That's our 2020. Woo. That is our 2021 list. What? We're back, baby. We're back. Are baby. back. <laughs> um, cool. As we're wrapping up, we said we're running real long, but we said we were going to do a, an honorable mention. Did you guys want to give a very short shout out to one other movie that was not on any of your or any of our lists? I would love to. Uh, I want to give off. a quick shout out to the most fun, crazy time that I had watching a movie this year. And that movie was Malignant. It was a fucking blast, and everyone should watch it. Love it. Uh, I wanted to give a special shout-out to Nightmare Alley, Guillermo del Toro's newest movie. Nice. Mm. Nobody's talking about this movie. Disney fucking buried it by releasing it the same day as No Way Home. Yeah, um, but buried it. Buried but features a fantastic Bradley Cooper performance and a, uh, a movie that I think is just legitimately about hell, and oh, yeah. I will not back down from that oh, reading yeah, of I'd it. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. I've seen it, yeah. Yeah. I think it's the best movie Del Toro has done since, honestly, since Pan's Labyrinth. I fucking loved it. I oh, thought it was amazing. But, uh, Eric. All right, yeah. Uh, the, what better way to end the 2021 movie pod by mentioning the best romantic comedy of the year? It's Venom Let There Be Carnage, Eddie! <laughs> 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 this movie was a fucking blast. I watched it with the two of you, and we had the, one of the most fun, enjoyable nights of the year. Fuck it. It's a great time. It knows what it is. Go watch Venom 2, you fucking idiots. <laughs> I also Boom. love Major love Resurrections. It. That's also a, a fucking yeah. <laughs> yeah. Peel off some other titles I had here: Malignant, Shiva Baby, The Empty Man, The Harder They Shiva Fall. Shiva Baby's 2020. It doesn't count. Luca. Luca. That's 2021. Hey, Encanto's really uh, good. Encanto's really good. Encanto was, was very close. good. Luca was almost on my list. Lu yeah, Luca's close. But that's it, folks. Uh, Eric, talk to us about the Living Force. Yeah, Living Force podcast. Get it on all your little podcatchers. We just had our big celebration where we gave our awards for Star Wars books in 2021. Check out the Utinis on our Utini YouTube channel. Uh, that's going every Monday night live. And, of course, we release them on Fridays. Lots of books coming out in 2021. Lots of reviews to write, lots of things to read, and that's why I won't be seeing more prestige movies. Living Force, mm. still going. 
Boom. Love it. Lauren, talk to us about The Vanishing Act. What are we up to? As always, you can listen to The Vanishing Act, our scripted show. You can check out our website, vanishingpod.com, or check us out on all social media at vanishingpod. Um, That's our audio drama. Eric's in it. Eric was just nominated for an award at the Audioverse Awards for his work in season one. Um, And we're very proud of him. I was nominated for my work as a duck. That was fun. Yeah! I think that was hilarious. There's a duck I in think the it was show. Great. I think it's you should amazing. check us out. All seasons one and two, completely out now. You can binge the whole thing. That's Lovely. It. That's all I got. Thank, thank you so much for listening, folks. We hope the year 2021 was filled with uh, fantastic movies, and we hope that if you didn't have anything that you liked this year, maybe our list gave you some stuff that you could think about and maybe turn on with your friends. Uh, but thank you very much for listening. Stay safe. Get boosted if you can and you have not already. And enjoy a happy and healthy 2022. Yay. Waving through window. Shut the fuck up! <laughs> 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 <laughs>